Today's chat is brought to you by, well, all of your support. Through the patronage you provide the Focus Fire chat team through Podbean's crowdfunding, we are able to provide you with the weekly podcast as well as the website and other aspects of Focus Fire chat. If you have any interest in becoming a patron of the FFC, please be sure to visit our website and click on the support link. Even a single dollar helps, and for those of you who are already patrons, thank you again for your generosity. You may have heard the whispers of guardians gathering in the shadows, exploring the mysteries of this world and the worlds which surround us. We are all in search of truth. Sometimes we need to focus that search, focus that fire. And so we come together. Join us. Join the discussion. Welcome to Focused Fire Chat. Welcome back for episode 171 of Focus Fire Chat, recorded live on June 14th over on twitch.tv slash focusfirechat. As always, I want to give a big shout out to our live chat here with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Our topic for tonight's episode is going to be a look at the invitations of the nine. But first, let's run through a quick introduction of those on the show for tonight. As always, this is your host, Blue Crew 86 Next up, we have our own master of social media, the one and only green-eyed music lover. Green, I hope you're doing well. How has the week treated you so far? And uh, has anyone sent you a good whip? Um, wow. <laughs> All right, then. Um, not expecting. I was like, getting, I was like, okay, I got the normal intro. I'm doing good. Things are fine. So story time. Let's explain this for our PG listeners on the show. Um, Wednesday night... Blue and I did a gaming stream, and normally our gaming streams are a little bit less PG, a little bit more relaxed. There's not a whole lot of watching your mouth and stuff like that going on in there. And I mentioned that I had gotten a whip from Cole, Isacol, who has been on the show prior, and I didn't explain that whip is an acronym W-I-P, not W-H-I-P. So... I said that chat goes crazy blues laughing. And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, why And I have to explain it. So a WIP, a whip is a work in progress. So Cole literally sent me a picture of one of her drawings <laughs> that she was working on. She sends them to me all the time. And I like, I give her feedback and stuff like that. And so blue managed to just, hook that and just run with it and now i have this stinking hashtag following me send me your whips wip still but it sounds so much worse than it actually is so the best, the for better those of you one is the other one that we made i'm not talking about the other one on this show and that one i'm oh gosh, you guys are terrible i blame i blame raz for the other one and black flag because you two took off on that one but god just <laughs> anyway anyway my week is good i <laughs> getting back into the normal swing of things uh the new season dropped i grinded my brain out on comp and got the new sniper rifle which that also sounds bad so we're starting out great guys i have revoker oh nice new sniper rifle so haven't used it yet basically got the weapon and just 
went and did other things. So, But I also have Beloved, which is the one you can get from Menagerie. That one is actually a lot of fun to use. So if you have not gotten that sniper rifle, please go get that. It's pretty awesome. Um, and it's easy to get. The recipes are pretty pretty easy to find online. And if you get a good roll on it, it's really fun. It feels a little bit like Thousand Yard Stare. It doesn't hit quite as hard as it did as a Thousand Yard Stare, but it feels very similar to that. So I'm excited for that. Have my pinnacle weapon for Crucible for this season so I can take a break and not go back into comp <laughs> for the rest of the season. But, yes, and that giggle you hear, and I'll, I'm going to steal the introduction for this one. Okay. That one is, the giggle you hear is actually one of my clan mates, Mr. Dwyerfire13, the cheese man himself, the the mod with the mostest type guy. He is our resident titan who loves shoulder charging <laughs> in the clan. He's also our resident titan who also makes really silly, awkward, funny mistakes sometimes that we all get giggling about all the time. So he's a good buddy of mine, and I'm glad he's on him right on the show right now with us. So how has your week been, Mr. Dwyer? It's been a long one. Um, mm-hmm. Long week at work, but I am glad to be here tonight. I am glad to be able to join you guys, and it's going to be a nice weekend off. Yes, it is. So before we get too far into it, where can people find you if they want to find you on the social medias or in PSN or whatnot? So Twitch, PSN, and Twitter, uh, easiest ways to find me, get a hold of me. And all three tags are the same, DwyerFire13, right as it appears here on the screen. Wait. All right, Blue, your turn. Tag, you're back in. <laughs> did I do okay? Did yeah, I you did. Right? You're, you're just not in the stream because I'm now flashing the hashtag. <laughs> Oh my gosh, are you really? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to... We're going to have talks. You are going to go to your f- corner and we're going to have talks. See what I got to put up with, guys? This is what I got to put up with. This is why she doesn't do game streams with me. Oh this my is, god. Yeah, this is... Like, mm, I'm sitting oh. here with five screens running and I just see flashing green on one of them. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I am okay, where's my emote? Here comes here comes angry angry Petra. All the angry Petras. This is why this is why it's worth going life. to the live stream because I'll just yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Oh man. Well, for this episode, Green, you actually asked a question earlier this week. Um mm-hmm. did you what how how big of a feedback did you get because i saw a, pro- a, a number of different responses in discord um and i'm assuming that's just a very small sampling of what was going on on twitter right i mean it's kind of an awkward question because it's probably the longest tweet i've had in a long time because i asked which invitation of the nine scene did you enjoy the most because if you have done any of the invitation of the nines you either got a cut scene where it's a pull you out of the entire uh, game essentially and you go into a physical cutscene or you get these cutscenes that you are able to move as a player within um we had nine of them nine weeks worth and there's quite the variety of what people tend to enjoy like some people really like the movie style cutscenes where you get the most information out of it um uh dredge and void basically said week one was his favorite because you got more information out of it 
about how Drifter got the hall, and you get information about how Drifter utilizes some of the dark Taken or the Taken that he's using and the dark moats. Um, other people were really interested in uh, weak. What was it? Week eight, and with what was that? Week eight was what? Death. I'm trying to remember which no, one it was. No, death was hangman. nine. Death was nine. Hangman. Mm-hmm. People really liked Hangman. Um, that had the triangle ships. People really liked that. People were really creeped out by the giant cloud of Marasov that turned towards you during it. So we had a lot of different responses from it, but I had a, one in particular that actually caught my eye because they picked up on something that we're going to talk about in the later part of the show, and that is uh, Star Hunter Ray. She picked up the fact that all of the week's titles are related to tarot. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we're going to talk about pretty heavily, I think, in this episode in the fact that, yeah, the writers did a really interesting job of incorporating the tarot cards and the interpretations, some of the interpretations to it, to relate to the scenes that you're seeing and the story that is being told throughout those weeks, which I thought was observant of her. So, yeah, um, a few, it was a little harder to get responses from this one because it's such a long and you had to know what you were looking at to really understand it. It's not just a, do you like this person? Yes or no. Not like the second grade, do you like me? Circle yes or no type thing or like the polls or anything like that. So those of you who came in and wrote up what you liked about it and who respond on a regular basis to these Ask FFC, Ask FFC tweets, I really appreciate you for putting some thought into it and kind of giving us your feedback and it's super fun to see what everyone thinks so that was this last week's i'm excited for next week's because i'm going to actually be kind of a pill i'm not going to tell you guys yet i'm going to be a pill about it and it'll go up hopefully early next week nice well i mean and kind of speaking of that um you know like green said i know we always love hearing everyone's feedback so when she does post it, I have it set up so that uh, when Green posts the question, it will get automatically put into the Discord channel as well. Mm-hmm. So that I know that we've seen a couple of uh, responses that get devol- that not devolve, evolve into longer conversations there as well. Uh, Discord's a little bit, I think, a little bit friendlier for longer conversations than Twitter, and mm-hmm. you know, because you only have so many characters in Twitter. But yeah, please be sure to sound off and let us know your thoughts, whether that's in Discord, whether it's on Twitter. Um, Before I jump through our standard intro notes, I do want to also take a moment and give a big shout out to Gamma Trap. Uh, I wanted to uh we had we had a bit of a if you're on the instagram post he he i think we had a miscommunication going and he's been amazing uh with the uh getting that clarified but he actually did the one of the predominant pieces in this week's banner um and if you don't know who gamma trap is i really think you should rectify that because he's an amazing artist um and a really he does a lot of yeah, he, he does a lot of work for a bunch of different people. He does. He um, does. Mylan Games, Beard Grizzly. He's done stuff for. Oh, he's done a lot of stuff for other people. So yeah, and and so just a big big shout out and a big thank you to Gamma Trap for all that he has done. Um, but yeah, so that being said, uh, let's run through our standard intro notes and then we're going to dive right into it. In our last episode of Focus Fire Chat, we discussed the symmetry. 
If you enjoy the show, please be sure to rate and, if you can, leave us a written review on iTunes or comment on the episodes on Podbean or whichever podcasting app you use to enjoy podcasts. Reviews are extremely helpful, as they not only let us know what we can do better, but help continue to expand the FFC family, which allows more and more perspectives to be heard. To those of you who have already taken the time to leave us a review, thank you. As many of you already know, Focus Fire Chat is a gathering place where the intent is to offer a week-long, in-depth view of a particular subject from within game lore, with a special focus on the Destiny universe. This chat begins every Tuesday morning and runs until the following Tuesday, with topics decided by the group via a poll that begins every Friday and ends on the Tuesday morning of the new chat. Every Friday at around 10 p.m. Central, we get together to stream a high-level summary of this previous week's chat for those who were unable to participate. If you're a fan of lore in all its various forms, be sure to also check out thelorenetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of some amazing content that covers a number of different titles and mediums. This will also be the home where the Focus Fire chat, episode note archives, and articles going forward. Our next chat is going to be a discussion on Hive Mythology. However, as always, please be sure to weigh in on the poll this weekend to let us know which topic you want to discuss after that. Links to that poll can be found on either Twitter, at FocusFireChat, or within our Discord server. Before we jump into the information and thoughts that the community had about the invitations of the Nine, however, let's have a quick chat about this week's Lost Lore. And then for the this week's lost lore, what I was actually thinking is kind of Green was <clears throat> intimating a little bit of this with the the naming convention Personally. of the card. Yes. Um, but I kind of wanted to do a just a really quick run through of uh, a very 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 and I'm going to emphasize this again very high level summary of kind of the significance in the history of tarot because I, I think <clears throat> there's a lot. There's a lot of assumptions about tarot uh, that might not be 100% accurate uh, out there. I know when when a lot of times people talk about tarot, they there's there's kind of two responses. Either there's a discomfort or there's kind of this, like, not necessarily lack of interest, but an interest in maybe something that's not necessarily what tarot is. Um, and so just to kind of, before we dive into it, because a lot of the tarot is based around imagery and symbolism. And so to kind of explain where we're going to be coming from, uh, because again, this is probably going to be a large part of this episode's conversation. Um, so real quick, the tarot is a deck of 78 cards and each card has its own imagery, symbolism, and story. You have 22 cards that are called Major Arcana cards, and they are usually viewed as representative of life's karmic and spiritual lessons. And then the other 56 cards are what are referred to as the Minor Arcana cards. <clears throat> and this reflects the trials and tribulations that a uh, that a person would experience on a daily basis. Um while many people believe that tarot will tell you the future, making predictions is actually not really what tarot cards are all about. If you look historically, the situation is that these cards were used from the mid-15th century in various parts of Europe, actually, to play games such as Italian tarotini, French tarot, and Austrian. I'm going to butcher this word, but it's congrafuin. Uh, many of these... Uh... 
or conigrifuin? Conigrifuin? I don't know. Conigrifuin. Thank you. Conigrifuin. And so actually the fun thing about this is that many of these tarot cards are actually still played today. Uh, It wasn't until about the 18th, the late 18th century, that those tarot packs actually were beginning to be used in parallel for divinization in the form of tarotology and cartomancy. Uh, And then later following that, you'll actually see uh, what's referred to as the specialist packs were developed for such occult purposes. So you actually have a segregation within the the use of these cards between uh, more mundane playing game or card games and then what's referred to as cartomancy or tarotology. Uh, So like common playing cards, the tarot has four suits and these suits are going to vary by regions and actually by the time period that you're looking at it. French suits in the Northern Europe, Latin suits in Southern Europe, and then German suits in the more Central European areas. Now, each suit, while different, may be different, each of them is going to have 14 cards. Ten cards are what are referred to as pip cards, which are the number cards, and they will number from one or ace to ten. And then you have four face cards, which is your king, queen, knight, jack, slash, knave. They, they kind of vary in names there as well. Mm-hmm. In addition, the tarot has a separate 21-card trump suit and a single card known as the fool. Depending on the game, the fool may actually act as either the trump, the top trump card, or it may be played to avoid following suit. So you can actually, the, the fool kind of bounces around depending on not just the 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 area but also the individual game it's uh it's kind of like a joker card in in modern parlance with uh mm-hmm. playing cards these tarot cards without occult symbology are actually still used throughout much of europe to play those those card games that i was talking about the cards especially within english-speaking countries where the mundane card games are not played as frequently so you have uh, uh england and france are the pretty much the two really big areas that this kind of was seen in are actually traced by some occult writers to ancient Egypt or the Kabbalah, but there is actually no documented evidence of such origins or the usage of tarot for divinization before the 18th century. So the earliest evidence of a tarot deck that was used for what's referred to as cardomancy comes from an anonymous manuscript around 1750, which documents rudimentary divinatory meanings of the cards from the Taraco Bolines. The popularization of the esoteric tarot started with the Antoine Court and Jean-Baptiste Alate or Italia in Paris during the 1780s, and this was using a deck known as the Tarot of Marseille. After the French players, or after the French tarot players, abandoned the Marseille Tarot in favor of the Tarot Nouveau around the late 1900s or the early 1900s, the Marseille pattern pattern is actually become used again by a lot of the cardomancers in modern day. So you actually are going to see in today's world, or in, in the esoteric version of tarot, as, as it's called, there's going to be three really common decks, and that's going to be the Tarot of Marseille, uh, the Rider Waite Tarot deck, and then there's a new one, or not a new one, another one called the Thoth Tarot deck. The Rider Wake Tarot deck <clears throat> is, is largely the most popular. Uh, it's it, if you if you go online and you're searching tarot cards, a lot of the imagery that you're going to see is probably going to be a Rider Waite uh, interpretation. Um, Most modern decks are based off of that as well. Yes, there there is a small resurgence of the Thoth tarot deck, um, but yeah, it's it's predominantly been Rider Waite uh, for the most time. 
So the the Rider Waite one is the yellow box. If you've ever seen a box of yes. cards that are, they have the yellow outline and they're very old fashioned looking. That's the Rider Waite deck. Mm-hmm. And and they actually the Rider Waite is actually a big inspiration for a lot of the uh, modern modern interpretations, if you will. Uh, so even though the artwork has been updated in a lot of modern, I mean, and and like a big a big one that I know a lot of people might be familiar with is Dragon Age, actually. Dragon mm-hmm. Age has fully embraced the concept of telling a story through tarot cards. And and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I really encourage you to go kind of look at that story. It's really cool. Like, um, one of the one of our friends who's been on a couple times, Inver, uh, or Josh, is a huge fan of Dragon Age. And one of the reasons is because of the way that they tell the story through the use of tarot cards. Uh, it's it's really there's there's a really cool hidden hidden vents going on as well in there uh real quick so we're going to be talking as we go through we're going to be talking about a lot of the what's referred to as the major arcana or even the greater secrets um cards now these are cards that do not fall into any suit um and they are ordered for the most part in a specific order without with exception of the fool and so I'm just going to I'm just going to read through them really quick. I'm not going to try to do justice and explain all of them, but just to give you an idea of these cards. The first one, so I'm going to start at 1 and I'm going to go to number 21. So you have the magician, the high priestess, the empress, the emperor, the hierophant, the lovers, the chariot, strength, the hermit, wheel of fortune, justice, the hanged man, death, temperance, the devil, the tower the star, the moon, the sun, judgment, and then finally the world. And then again, like I said, excuse me, the fool. The fool. Mm-hmm. And the fool is the one that kind of floats throughout the entire thing. Uh, the other cards that we mentioned were the minor arcana, and these are also referred to as the lesser secrets. Now, these are the cards that are going to be divided into four suits. Uh, generally, the suits are the swords, the cups, and then this is these are the next one is what's referred to originally as the batons, but depending on the area and the time that you're looking at, you can also see them. Scepters. Uh, you will see them referred to as staves, wands, rods, scepters, a number of those different things. And then the last suit is what was originally called coins, which has now been seen in versions called pinnacles and discs. Uh, so those are the four <clears throat> four suits. And then again, each of those suits. We have the uh, what's called the face cards, the king, queen, knight, and then either a page or a jack, and then pip cards, uh, which is one or ace all the way up to ten. Uh, so that the the lesser secrets cards basically is what is very akin to what we would know, what most people in the modern world would recognize deck. as a plain deck. Um, so you, you know, in a playing deck, you have hearts, spades, clubs, and diamonds. So it's just, it's same concept, same concept. Um, obviously they are used in the esoteric version. They're used for a different purpose, but that's, I mean, easy way to connect that there. Um, but a lot of modern readers will actually use a regular playing deck now. Yes. Yeah. Pull out the writer, writer weight deck. I've, I've had a tarot reading done once. And she used just a regular playing deck, so she never had any of the major arcana within it. It was a very particular type of read that she did. So yeah, um, yeah. 
Yes, and Chad is asking, we are going to get to that. Uh, it is not just the name of the missions that we will be talking about in reference to the imagery. Uh, there is actually the boss of the Reckoning is, or one of the bosses. Uh, mm-hmm. there, is some, there is some imagery hidden there as well. But Green, I don't know, did you want, did you have anything else that we should, in, in like a high level summary of tarot, I, it, again, high level, I, I recognize that this is not by any means a full, fully incomprehensive no. look. Um, there is really, it, it really actually is from a, his, from a strictly historical, like ignoring the esoteric and cartomancy and all that. Um, the historical story of the development of tarot is pretty much like a lot of the, uh, just entertain, entertainment and games. It's really actually really interesting looking at how it developed mm-hmm. over time. Um, I, th- I think the only thing that I want to bring up and it's just more of a reiteration of you mentioned the fact that, uh, tarot is not necessarily used in like the esoteric way. It is used more of as a psychological, um, device to get insight into a person's own, mindset at that point right so using that as a reminder to be like hey we're looking at these cards these invitations and whatnot in relation to drifter and Orin in particular it's almost a call out to his mindset in some respects now granted drifter is not the one giving us the interpretations of them but he is a subject whether or not he's actually the the one being read for or whatnot with left to be discussed and debated but i think it's important to remember that this is kind of an an insight into his mindset and what is going on with that well and it's it's as much an insight i mean so whenever you talk about drifter or whenever you talk about the emissary or the drifter really you know uh they're they're intimately involved with both both of with each other um, and I don't mean that necessarily in the romantic sense, though. I mean that can be argued as well. But I mean they are their their stories are intertwined very closely. Um, yes, and they that is a large source of uh, the the um, the driving factor within, particularly this piece. Um, you know, there is multiple instances as we went through the the nine or weeks of uh installments for this p for these little quests in which drifter actually was inserting himself into the story um you know there there were multiple points where part of the quest was actually going to get the drifter's point of view of what was Mm -hmm. being revealed to us and that was not always a he was not always happy to know that we were learning about his past because when we were learning about the emissary's past, we also were learning about his past, and that is something <clears throat> that is something to keep in mind too. When you, when you go through and you look at the quest, when you look at the the imagery of the quest and all that, uh, that is something really that is important to remind or to remind yourself of. Um, and that kind of ties in, if you don't mind, I'm going to just kind of jump into the introduction of the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, intro, the, the, the concept of the invitations is it's basically a new quest within Destiny 2 that, or well, within the world of Destiny, I guess, as we're referring to it now, um, that focuses around Drifter, the Emissary, and the Nine themselves. And this was a nine-week, which turned into a ten-week due to a, a hiccup, but a, a, a certain timed event that kicked off each Friday that started on March 15th and went all the way up to, like, I think it was May 10th. 
uh, with the arrival of Zur. Zur was actually the catalyst point of each of these little mini quests that we took. Uh, the the invitation was a item that you could purchase from Zur for nine legendary shards each weekend. And it required, you know, obviously to get to the next step, you had to finish the step prior to that. Uh, the individual week's mini quests were broken into two primary steps. The initial step revolved around the completion of a strike and the collection of nine metaphysical samples from a designated enemy race that inhabited the world for that week's chosen focus. And then the final step required a visit to the hall, which is the large chunk of uh, something that the drifter Ship. is pulling, um, which where you were allowed to enter the nine realms, which is uh, where you kick off reckoning for those who are playing the game today. Uh, so upon entering the nine realms, the guardian is actually faced with a portal that unlocks another piece of the mysterious story between the nine and their involvement with humanity. Um, and then the the thing that, and this is kind of what we've been dancing around or kind of talking about is an interesting twist was seen in the presentation of the weekly events as tarot cards. And all of these, all of these events were named after specific cards from the major arcana deck, um, or the major arcana selection. Um, let me see if I had anything else. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I have. Um, we'll, we'll definitely, I'm to kind of run through real quick. The nine cards were week one was the world. Week two was justice. Week three was the high priestess. Week four was the magician. Week five was strength. Week six was the twins or the lovers as it was kind of identified as week seven was the tower. Week eight was the hanged man. And then week nine was the last one was death. Um, and we're we're gonna we're gonna come back. So I know I ran through those a little bit quickly, um, but yeah. So that's I mean that's really a really high level introduction to kind of what the invitations are. It's a it's a new set of mini quests that really were intended to kind of bring into the game. I know this was kind of a, a sensitive subject for a lot of us who have who have read all the lore books outside a game. But the purpose was really to kind of infuse a couple of those lore books into the game. And and to really, to be honest, uh, there were a couple of points that actually, to me personally, it clarified a lot. Uh, because especially as we got into the latter half of the events, there was points where they were reading. Uh, there was It was putting into audio some of the text that we had gotten in lore books. And as... As someone who is used to just reading text, it's very difficult to read tone sometimes in text. And so hearing these these parts of the text being brought into actual audio clips, uh, it kind of confirmed a couple of theories and it also kind of disproved a couple of theories about the emotions that were behind those texts, uh, which I thought was very helpful. I really appreciated that actual component of it. Um, but I'm going to just kind of hand it off to green to, if, if she's willing to kind of start with a more detailed breakdown of the, the different events of the invitations. All right. So the world is the week one where we went to the EDZ, fought Cabal, Fallen and Taken to collect the metaphysical samples and did the Lake of Shadows strike to complete it. It is the one where we get the cutscene on the derelict where Drifter is playing cards, which I want those cards. And there's been talk about from a few different developers. Yes, there has. I'm looking at you <laughs> so about excited. making that into an actual deck. Um, they're playing cards on the derelict, Drifter and a hunter of some sort. We don't know who the hunter is. It is 
partially assume that that hunter is a shadow of some sort, whether like a, one of um, the shadows of your type character. We don't have absolute confirmation on which shadow or who and whatnot, but the card game is fine. There's a confrontation between Drifter and the hunter. A fallen captain, a taken fallen captain, is summoned to take care of the hunter, and then Drifter kind of loses control of said taken fallen captain, and all of a sudden, boom, Emissary shows up. And there is a small conversation between the Emissary and Drifter that takes place, and the gift of the hall is attached to the derelict, and Drifter is basically charged with working for the Nine, coerced, without any consent. So... That's how Drifter gets the hall. That's the background on that a little bit. There is the transcript up on Ishtar Collective, as they do have transcripts of every single invitation up there if you would like to kind of follow along in that respect. Beyond that, I'm going to actually hand it back to you two to talk, Dwyer and Blue, about the metaphysical aspect and the representation of the world, because I know that Dwyer did some research on that as well. So... What does the card, the world, mean? Yeah, Dwyer, go go for it. So, the world card, as an upright-facing tarot, uh, symbolizes completion, integration, accomplishment, and travel. If it was a reversed-facing tarot, it would be seeking closure, closure, excuse me, shortcuts or delays. Based on the story and what we know about the Drifter, I would hypothesize that it's an upright-facing with his travel through his stories and everything we know about him. I don't see him seeking closure in that scene. I don't see anything with him making a shortcut, and there's no real delays for him. He's kind of just going... I mean, the hull is kind of a delay. Getting a giant rock attached to the back of your... Maybe it's a delay in his progression and what he wants to do. Yet in the eyes of the Nine, that could be an accomplishment for him earning this hall. True. Anyway, continue. So, Sorry. with that cutscene, um, we see him... In his interaction with the emissary, Orin, whatever you want to call her, he's very hesitant with it. It's almost like he doesn't recognize her at first, and he's very, very cautious about the line at the end, what gift? As you hear the thud of the hall being attached to the derelict, it just gives that connotation of he's not really sure about what's going on here. So I'm to say that the cards themselves aren't about the drifter in that scene, but more about the emissary slash the nine themselves well and the interesting thing too about about the 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 selection of the card the world right um is the artistic historical uh symbolism and the depiction on the card uh because so emissary this is this for me was the cool connection for for this one uh the emissary is always shown as floating or hovering uh, if you look at the Rider Waite tarot deck, the depiction of the card is always of a, a naked woman that is hovering or dancing above the earth, and she usually has a staff in both hands. Um, now, she's often she's often in the card depicted as being surrounded by what's referred to as the green wreath, and each of the corners of the card have uh, have four different creatures, uh, and there's there's a lot of different 
rep or like different uh uh definitions that you can go there um some people will say that they're generally four figures that are referenced in the book of revelations uh chapter four verse seven um or there's another one that says that they're the four beasts of the world represent the fourfold structure of the physical world um and so then that will often those decks will often show the central figure as a tetramorph um which is a whole different thing um mm-hmm. but and the four th- different creatures are semi important one being yes. human a bird a bull and a lion yes it's referred to the yeah ones. the cherub the eagle the bull and the lion um and then yeah it so that's that's also symbolic of what's uh what's known as the four evangelists uh, again, going back to a Christian kind of connotation, kind of uh, root there. Um, you can also say that they are the uh, zodiac. There's the also reference there between Leo, Taurus, Aquarius, and Scorpio. Um, again, symbols, elements, the four compass points, four seasons, you know, four corners of the universe, all all sorts of stuff there. But the the focus of the card is really this this figure of a woman who is literally floating. Um, which I find interesting because that's what every time we see the emissary, her full, her full depiction, she is floating. She has never, we've never seen her. And when we get her whole body in the shot, it's never standing. It's always floating. I, I don't remember ever seeing her grounded. Uh, and the kind of the, the thing is, is if, uh, if you look at it as her dancing, uh, the way they kind of explained it in the card is that she's looking behind her to her past while her body moves forward to the future. Um, and the, there is a connection here with the magician uh, because the, the two wands or the two batons that she holds is very similar to the one that the magician holds. And um, basically what is kind of being implied there is that it's it's kind of symbolizing that what began with the magician is now being brought to completion with the world. Uh, and so that's where you see, again, the wreath that's circling her is circular, which is symbolizing the continual cycle of a successful completion and new beginnings. Because, you know, even as she steps through the wreath, she is completing one phase, but beginning another one almost straight away. So it's almost that Ouroboros type concept. Uh, Dwyer, you're kind of mentioning that uh, with it being inverted or not. Uh, so it's either an ending or beginning, but really, but they're both the same, right? You know, it, an ending is just another way of looking at a beginning and vice versa. A beginning can't be there without something coming to an end. Um, so that's where you also see like a symbolism of completeness. Uh, you have like representation of cosmic consciousness, potential. Uh, of like perfect union again with that completionist and then like again the 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 overall understanding of an achievement of full happiness from the concept of giving back to the world uh you basically Mm -hmm. through the sharing of what you've learned and gained you you gain something and then you give something and that that cycle is is where you kind of a lot of the times this card is shown as uh, representative of what is truly being desired by the person um, I would also emphasize the number of the card, uh, the number in which this is given is rather important um, because basically, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about this once we get through all of them, but just remember that we have nine cards. Um, that number is actually significant even within the tarot as well. Uh, not just not just because it's connected to the nine in game, but there's actually there is actually a bigger thing going on within a tarot card 
uh, spread is what's called uh, with the number nine as well. All right. So that takes us to week two. Week two was kind of infamous as far as within the community, because week two is the week of the multicolored ghost, meaning there were people who viewed and saw ghosts that were different colors. Um, friend of the show, Isacol, did a huge rundown with lots of samples and lots of people's responses on what amazing. color their ghosts were. It was so much work. And there was no correlation based on class, subclass, race, whatever. There was no distinct correlation between any of them that we could tell with the sample size that we had. So this is the week where you see at the end, and I'm trying to, I'm going to talk about the cutscene so people can pick up on where that is, and then I'll go back and talk about the actual quest going into it. But it's a cutscene where you see the emissary talking to the nine. And there is almost a somewhat argument that's going on. There she, the, the nine ask Oren or the emissary, do you regret this? And she is kind of referred to as judgment, essentially, within this. Because she says, what? And they say, judgment. I have more agency as an agent than I ever did wielding the light. You lost everything. Nothing that ever mattered. I would die for those I love. We don't understand. No. And so it's an interesting scene where the ghost drops, which I would interpret is her ghost falling off because she was formerly, we find out later, if you're not somebody who's privy to the lore book itself, you find out that the emissary used to be an awoken titan, female awoken titan that used to wield the light. Obviously, she does not anymore. As far as the the quest line that goes on for that week, we have Justice, which was uh, Sabathun's song, song strike mission to complete with the metaphysical sam- samples on Titan of Hive and Fallen. There was that glitch going on where you could basically farm Hive or Fallen from any location, but it was mainly meant to be on Titan themselves. Beyond that, do we want to dive into the figure of Justice and what that card itself means? Before before we do Lighter that, uh, before we do that, I do want to give a shout out to there was a there was a joke video for this one that was. I I literally fell over laughing at it because it was so funny. Someone had taken a recording of it because a lot of people, you know, especially with the consoles being what they are now, it's easy to record. And someone had taken a recording of their guardian standing there and they were getting bored with the video or the, the audio thing. So he turned and I, I just I love how the timing worked, but he shot the ghost right as the, the video um or the recording stopped right when it oh, fell. I this. And it the ghost just drops. And you could just see the guardian go, huh, huh. And the title is I no, broke it. The title is No, 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 sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> because it fell mm-hmm. and then it rolled off the edge. <laughs> it's just oh my gosh. I watched that back to I can't remember who had it, but it was the funniest video I have I oh my gosh it was so fun uh. <laughs> on that note my first character <laughs> because I'm a titan naturally I just did no, you punch it I ran in to see what was happening and I guess I like chest bumped the ghost <laughs> completely by accident and it just goes tumbling away I'm like uh, uh, oh, what no. <laughs> it's gone 
and it just it tumbled it rolled off and it was just gone to existence and i felt bad because i was trying to put the data forth for the charts and i didn't catch the color he rolled away he was gone i was like sorry <laughs> oh my god it was just the the video the title and the way the guardian just like embodies the oh, oh no <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. oh my gosh oh man um yeah so symbolism of justice uh mm-hmm. justice again is another obviously another major card uh the order in the decks is either eight or eleven uh depending on the deck actually um this is one of the cards that again a lot of these cards are going to be both played in the more mundane as well as in the uh, teratology or divin- divinization decks uh and this is usually um in the modern version uh justice is usually appeared as being uh blindfolded uh and that's actually not <laughs> not the version that the justice figure in this card has um the allegory of justice is a painting by Raphael which was in the Italian Renaissance <clears throat> and that was where that's the very very popular justices they got the 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 cloth tied the over lady yeah justice. lady justice where she yeah. has the cloth and then she has the scales and the sword that's the allegory mm-hmm. of justice uh this is not necessarily the allegory of justice uh this is a um a depiction of a woman she does have the scales which is the uh the usual indication of a balanced decision but um usually what the show here is is that she is sitting in front of a purple veil uh, which the color is important as well. It signifies compassion. And between two pillars, uh, similar, again, to those framing the high priestess and the hierophant, uh, and they represent law and structure. She does have a sword, generally, and that, again, is a, a symbolic of the the logical, well-ordered mindset that's necessary to dispense fair justice. Um, the sword is usually presented as pointing upwards, which expresses a, what's referred to as a firm and final decision. And the double-edged blade signifies that our actions always carry consequences. So it's not a single-edged blade. It's actually, uh, usually it's a, uh, something similar to a gladis, which is the Roman Roman sword that a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, the scales in her left, which is the left hand, is always kind of meant, uh, viewed as the intuition or the intuitive side. Uh, show intuition must balance that logic, and they are a symbol of her impartial impartiality. Uh, Justice will usually is wearing a crown that has a square on it, representing well-ordered thoughts, and a red robe with a green mantle. And just at the bottom, you can see a little white shoe that pops out from beneath her clothing um, as a reminder of the spiritual consequences of actions taken. Um, Dwyer, I don't know if you wanted to throw anything else on there as far as like the order of uh, the significance of it being upright or not so justice facing upright signifies justice ironic uh fairness truth cause and effect and law when shown in reverse it signifies unfairness lack of accountability and dishonesty looking at the card itself with the cutscene we get again i'm gonna say this is about orin slash the emissary um amongst her other two names she has found what she sees is her truth in my mind which we hear in her saying no when they're asking like the do we do we do not understand the nine 
repeats that sentiment time and time again throughout the lore, which is part of what they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out what humanity is, how we function, how we work, and how they can find corporeal being. And when Orin's like, I stand for the ones I love, I would, I don't regret anything I do, she finds her justice, her fairness, her truth in everything she has done up to this point, leading her to where she is today. She doesn't have it seems it could be part of her being the emissary now that she has no lack of accountability or she just isn't dishonest, but her as the emissary makes we through these stories we get a great background into who she is. In my opinion, we see her as a character more than just a messenger, and she looks to uphold her fairness, her justice throughout the entire thing. Interesting, interesting It's just so okay. The interpretations of the card and the possible upright inversions and whatnot, they're so flexible. Mm -hmm. And granted, that's the whole point of tarot, Mm -hmm. to be incredibly flexible and to read into it what you see. Yes. Which is something to keep in mind as we're going through and talking about the inversions and the interpretations that we have. They're meant to be interpreted in multiple ways because each person is going to read them in a very different way. Granted, we are reading them as an outside observer for an event that is going on. And something, I don't know if Blue mentioned this, when you have tarot done, you have a question in mind, whether or not you're doing a tarot on finance or love or um, being prosperous or anything like that. You have a question in mind while you're doing it as far as the esoteric aspects of it go. But if you go into the psychological aspects with that on top of it, the question in mind does affect your interpretations highly. So that being said, our interpretations as an outside observer on this may or may not actually reflect what the writer's intent was in this. Well, and I think that's also, uh, that was during our character uh, let's chat with uh, Josh. He mentioned that he had a tarot mm-hmm. card reading and the the fun the reason I'm kind of chuckling is when he had the tarot card reading, um, he he said the thing that stood out for him was that it was not a reading of him. The tarot card re- no. the re- the lady who is doing the reading was definitely reading her interpretations into it. She wasn't letting mm-hmm. she wasn't uh, allowing him to place interpretation. So she was like, it helped her, but it didn't answer any of the questions that you know he had because it was it was all she was focused on her questions. Um, which again, coming from, we were kind of talking about that before the show started, uh, coming from a more psychological, uh, self-reflective analysis, the tarot is actually really an interesting tool, uh, to help kind of, um, encourage and build that kind of self-actualization and self-awareness that a lot of psychologists really like to encourage. Uh, there's a lot of, there's an actual movement now with a lot of the tarot, where you'll have people who will get a tarot deck and every morning they'll draw a card. They, you know, they'll shuffle yeah. it and they'll draw a card. And the intent it's is... simple reading you can Right. The, the intent is has nothing to do with, uh, oh, how's my day going to go? Or, you know, anything like that. It's the, literally they draw the card and they say, what do you see? What is what is what is going to immediately jump out to mind? Because it's, it's a... It's a it's a way to tap into that that information that's going on behind the scenes or underneath the water, you know, that unconscious uh, information that's flowing through you. 
Uh, it's just another flavor of that type of, uh, if you want to call it psychoanalysis, you can. Um, but it's another way to kind of tap into that that mysterious aspect of what it is to be us. Um, and that, that, to me, that's where my interest really kind of perks up with tarot is the way that, you know, exactly what you're saying, Green, uh, the fluidity of the symbols on here. They actually, it's, it's one of the few times that you see something like this fully embrace that fluidity. They don't balk from it there because the response is, no, it is fluid because it's not about, there's not a, there's not a, uh, a hard definition of what the card means because the card means different things for different people. That's why you see so many different iterations of the tarot cards out there. Uh, you know, you have tarot. That's also why there's so many websites. Right. On, right. On yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and and to be fair to the websites that are out there, this is not something like this isn't like historical facts. Like this is this is all about you know what do you read into it do you do you read this or do you read that you know and so there's there's going to be you're going to see conflicts of definitions you're going to see different uh ways to read the card you know all the and that's that's actually what kind of makes it fun in my mind so i i actually have a tarot deck and i was kind of teaching myself how to do it and one of the things that i was taught is that you really just want to become really familiar with the deck um, on all the symbology that's going on in the pictures and everything like that. And really all the interpretations, you you try not to guide other people if you're reading for other people. Like that person who read for yeah, Josh yeah, was that, uh, yeah. not, reading for, <laughs> not reading for Josh. Um, you really say, like you have them look at it. And there's guiding things you can do, but you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be a self-done thing rather than read for other people. Anyway, shall we move on to the High Priestess? Yeah. Dwyer, do you want to talk about the High Priestess week as far as like what we had in game and whatnot? Sure. Um, we had easily the creepiest cutscene of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the High Priestess, it started with the metaphysical samples being drawn from Nessus, our three combatants of the Fallen, Vex, and Cabal. The strike was the inverted spire strike on Nessus a favorite of all of us, I believe, just because you have to fall through the floor so many times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then going into the cutscene for that one, we have Orin talking to the Nine again, and they're talking about what everyone perceives as Mara based on the giant cloud in the background that likes to take its time and slowly stare at you as you stand there waiting to open your chest. It's a... Uh, that cutscene was... The, just talking about how Mara is in peril where she is. She will die, she will be afraid, she will beg for the release of death, and we see Orin standing there just denying, denying, saying, Mara's, you can't kill what's already dead. Mara's been there before, she's clever, she can work her way out of this. Mm -hmm. You don't know the meaning of that word, which I found was interesting, that the Nine don't understand the end as far as interpretations of the the conversation that is had. And the conversation is actually pretty short. And most of these are. Should we just read this one? Yeah, uh, you want me to read it? You read the nine, I'll read Emissary. The clever one is in peril. She'll manage. They will annihilate her. Then she will die as one of us, gladly. She will regret before the end. You don't know the meaning of that word. She will beg for death's release. You cannot kill what has already died. 
So short, but very powerful. And the High Priestess is a pretty important card in the deck. It is the second trump or of the major arcana card in most traditional tarot decks. It is used in game playing as well as in divination. The original depiction of the card had held a figure crowned with the papal tiara, known as being a possible mm-hmm. reference to the legend of Pope Joan with the inscription of La Papacy, literally the Popus. So is it uh, the legend of Joan of Arc, uh, the Pope Joan of Arc, I'm essentially? Sorry. Is that how uh, I'm interpreting that? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that there's legend. There's a couple different ones. Hang on. Let me make sure I'm before I get myself in, interpreted here. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's not, not – I don't believe it's Joan of Arc. Uh, it was um, a okay. popular legend <laughs> um, that's uh, – I think it was around the 13th century, uh, supposedly – was a woman who reigned as pope for a few years during the middle ages um and the kind of the legend was that she was revealed after she had to give birth uh which is kind of hard for a male to do so they kind of figured out that mm-hmm. um and and depending on which area you're looking at the 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 legend or the myth whatever you want to refer to it as um is is kind of different it differs from place to place but that it was uh i think it was the eight it was uh 855 bc or sorry ad sorry wow man i flipped that uh yeah wow. hey surprise she was ahead of her time um no 855 855 to 857 was when the uh the supposed pope joan existed and yeah that's that's exactly what they're kind of referring to with the papal tiara papal tiara is a very um distinct tiara uh or crown if you want it's got the stack it's got a tiered stack to it uh which is where you kind of see a lot of depictions of um the other interesting thing or the kind of the the intriguing thing with the high priestess card is the decorations around the character uh she so she's often shown in front of a a veil that's decorated with pomegranates and the veil is often kind of you know kind of referred to as the separation between the conscious and subconscious the seen and unseen and it, it basically it serves to keep casual onlookers away or out and the pomegranates are pomegranates are generally accepted as signs or symbols of abundance, fertility, and the divine feminine. Uh, this kind of ties back to a very common myth and a very common legend that it involves pomegranates, that of Persephone. Um, and that is because Persephone was trapped in the underworld due to her having ingested some of the pomegranates that were in the underworld. Um, depending on, again, depending on myth, that's either she was forced to return to the underworld or she willingly went to the underworld, um, depending on which, which interpretation of that oral myth you want to go on. Um, <clears throat> on either side of the high priestess is usually seen two pillars, and that's basically the entrance of the, the, uh, the temple that is that the veil is the veil is separating them from uh this temple is usually associated with the temple of solomon uh one tent one pillar is black with the letter b inscribed on it and the other is white with the letter j b is kind of indicative of boaz which means in his strength and is actually also interestingly a guardian that we know of and later in to kind of tie back to destiny and then the other, the J, is actually referring to Jochen, which means he will establish. So it's he will establish in his strength. 
Uh, and again, black and white is used here to symbolize the duality, the masculine, and the feminine, the darkness, the light, um, and basically kind of drives the understanding that knowledge and acceptance of duality are required to kind of go past the veil, which again is the thing that's keeping keeping you from from seeing what should be un, or what is unseen. Uh, to kind of dive into the priestess, uh, she's usually portrayed in a blue robe with a cross on her chest and a horned diadem or crown, uh, which is indicative of divine knowledge and the status of the divine ruler. Again, kind of going back to the Pope Joan legend, she will usually see a scroll with the letters T-O-R-A in her lap, and that is signifying the greater law. And usually the the scroll is partially covered. Uh, so artistically, that's usually seen as signifying that 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 knowledge, which is sacred, is both explicit and implicit. Uh, it will only be revealed when the the student or the initiate is uh, ready to be similar to the veil. Uh, she also usually has a crescent moon at her feet, which symbolizes, again, the divine feminine, her intuition and subconscious mind, as well as the cycles, the natural cycles of the moon. So there's, there's a, as with a lot of the major arcana, uh, there is, there's a lot in there. Um, that's, and they're usually pretty detailed too. So it's, it's, a, it's an attract. I, I like mm-hmm. the card actually, the, the art for this one is pretty cool. It can be very simple. Right, that's true. Too. That's true. Like, there's so many different versions of it. Um, the Rider White, wait, wait, Wyatt, Wyatt deck, Rider Wyatt deck is fairly de- mm-hmm. uh, detailed, but there are some very simplified versions of it, which are more of a yin yang looking right, type right. thing where it's very blocky. So, um, interpretations of those cards are highly dependent the, on the mm-hmm. stylization and the in the detail included within them. That's, that is true. A lot of the descriptions that I'll be kind of referencing are the writer Wyatt just, uh, imagery, just simply because that's, again, that's a that's a very predominant uh, deck. The Thoth deck is going to be more Egyptian uh, in, in portrayal, mm-hmm. and then, um, yeah, the writer Wyatt Smith deck was the one that I was going off of. Um, the Tarot of Marseille, I think that one actually is pretty that's that's one of the more uh basic simplistic ones if i remember correctly mm-hmm. there's a couple different other versions that are very simplified as well um i do not have them on the top of my head at the moment but dwyer did you have any other things to add about the inversions and the upright readings of this card so the upright reading itself uh, symbolizes intuition sacred knowledge the divine feminine and the subconscious mind while the reverse is secrets a disconnect from intuition withdrawal and silence this one's tricky (laughs) in my opinion yeah it you can see it in either way honestly um I think the beautiful thing about this card being used for Mara in particular, and this is, again, an interpretation, is it is indicative of the Awoken people in general. So you have the duality within the Awoken people of the light and dark being a part of them at any one point in time. So the High Priestess card being used for an Awoken woman or just any Awoken in general would be, I think, apt as far as reading into the future reading or the psychology beyond that, I don't know if there's much because like you said, it can be interpreted either ways. 
either way. Blue, do you want to take on the magician? Yeah, sure. As far so as the magician goes. is week four, which was April fifth, uh, to kind of give you kind of a, a touch point there. Um, this one was the the first portion of the quest was predominantly on Io, so that is the Pyramidian strike, which I, I feel like Dwyer would actually be more appropriate for this one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, See, hey. Top three. Plug in the other podcast. Um, so yeah, the pyramid in strike on IO, and then with the with as with the other ones, metaphysical samples uh, are actually taken. Vex and Cabal, um, and then we got into the vision. Uh, so this is basically it's referred to as the vision of a mysterious figure. Um, this is the one where it refers to. I think the I think this is really just honestly a conversation between the nine and emissary about the drifter. Uh, oh yeah, because this is the one where you get to jump on the jade coins, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. the the emissary is actually kind of reprimanding the nine a little bit. Uh, they they start off and they say, "What does it want?" And she responds with, "You ask the same questions. You never listen." And <laughs> nine it's kind of like they're like why did it do this and she says he's afraid of everything not just because they say of death and she says of everything and she says and they say so it kills and then we get something really interesting and this is a really good kind of insight into the drifter the emissary responds with he hates violence he hates it so much that he'll murder anyone who tries to inflict it on him um and again, they're talking about the Drifter, which is very uh, in line with what has kind of begun to be a, a very big picture of the Drifter with the man or a man with no name. Uh, the arc about how the Drifter kind of got to the point where he doesn't like the light bearers um, and the cost of kind of being caught in the middle between the Iron Lords and the Warlords. Uh, he it really does kind of pull back the curtain for the drifter as well. This is also one of the few times that the drifter weighs in about the uh, the vision, and he he kind of he he has a he has a bit of a strong point of view. Uh, he actually will retell the story of Oren's uh, point of view, and he, in this one he says, "Hey, if I tell you what I know about the emissary, will you promise to stop wasting your time on her?" She used to be reefborn, loyal to the queen. Then she died. Ghost picked her up, took the name Orin. Then she went looking for the Nine. She needed power. She got it. But now she's something else. She has no past to uncover. She's not what she was. Neither am I. So stop looking for her. Um, again, classic drifter, deflecting and defending, you know, kind of being defensive on that one. Um and that that actually that particular piece is actually titled "He Doth Protest Too Much," which which I love. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is the the magician actually has a few different things, uh, but I'll hand that you know back over to Green or Dwyer, whichever one you guys, whichever one. Dwyer tag first. All right. Um. So the magician, it's upright. Uh, resembles manifestation, resourcefulness, power, and inspired action. While shown in reverse, it represents manipulation, poor planning, and untapped talents. We're talking about the drifter here, so again, this is one that you can see as going either yeah, way. Yeah, actually. His, his character is very, I'm not going to say shadowed, but there's a lot of, that we don't know about him, and there's a lot that he wants us to know in his vision. 
for lack he, of a better way to phrase it. He has a very particular mask that he wants us to see. Yes. Yep, and the fact that we're shattering it by good diving into his, well, semi being guided into his past and seeing past that mask. Um, I think the juggler interpretation mm-hmm. is almost more apt for him rather than the magus or the magician in general. Granted, there are things that you could interpret as far as Drifter is being able to do. He's very much so uh, a smooth tack. <laughs> So he's able to uh, manipulate those around him to best utilize his his needs and his his desires fulfilled. So the juggler, I think, is very, very apt because he is the entertainer in some respects, which is another way I have seen this card be interpreted as the entertainer, the performer type card. Yeah, I would I would weigh in just really quick on the fact that the magician or the magus or whatever um so there, there's, again, the, the artistic depiction here uh, is from the Rider Waith deck. But the, uh, the, the actual figure of the, the magician, usually he's seen in a white robe, which symbolizes purity. He has a red cloak, which is worldly experience and knowledge. But the interesting thing to me, or the connecting point for me here, is that around his waist, he wears a snake that bites its own tail, um, which is both very connected to him to drifter as well as Orin. Orin actually has a tattoo of a snake on her arm and or and drifter obviously the snake with the gambit you know the whole concept there um he's often usually depicted as having an infinity symbol above his head as well as usually in in the more decorative cards he will be standing before a table that has symbols of all the tarot suits of that particular deck um, and then it's also kind of indicating indicative of him having the capa- complete capability and the tools that he's needed. He needs to manifest his intentions into being, which again ties back to what the hall really is. He, that's his ability to manifest pretty much anything he can think up, uh, which is what's described by I believe it was Ikora or Anor. I can't remember which one, but they kind of made a comment about him. His scariest thing is the the taken version of uh, the no, it was Oryx, Oryx, yeah, 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 um, mm-hmm. and how like he oh he has a limited imagination or something like that. But but the whole point is that he has the tools to make his intentions come into being. Uh, again, he is the Green Lantern of the Destiny universe oh God. within that. Area. You know, I mean, it's you know, you're not it kind you're of not fits. wrong. It, You're not wrong. It kind of. I fits. don't know if green would be his core, but um, no. Yeah, you're you're not. He's, he's a but lantern. He is a, I can see that. Yeah, no. But I again, I just thought it was interesting that his his the depiction of the magician or the magus or the juggler, whichever one you want to refer to it as, uh, usually incorporates a snake as in in it's usually biting its own tail, which again kind of ties into the whole concept of Ouroboros. But in regards to destiny. It's very, very connected to Gambit and the whole concept of what we're what we're actually looking at within the invitations as well. So many symbols that are connected. It's like they planned this. <laughs> My question for you, Blue: the symbolism of the infinity sign floating almost at a false halo over the magician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. In respects to the Drifter, where would you? I mean. That? Because I would say that with the Drifter, too, he is a guardian 
uh, he is locked in an in, in an infinite loop of not being able to die. Um, you know, I, I kind of take that to be a little bit there. Um, but the thing, the thing that I kind of I push back against with the magician is the drifter. The drifter's robes are not white. Um, he's he's definitely got, and we kind of talked about this uh, a while back, because he's dressed very specifically for a funeral. He's dressed for in a death robe. He's you know he's 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 right. got that. Um, but I kind of yeah like the the infinity symbol I've always kind of taken as like the the never ending cycle for a guardian to be not able to really end. I was just going to say, as far as the interpretation, I, I mean, there's one interpretation of those robes, meaning purity, but purity is like a very simple, a simple reading on fair, that. Fair, fair. With the, with, with the death robes themselves and his intentions, his intentions are very, well, we don't know his complete intentions, but he's very easy to you can tell what he's about a lot of the times because he's very plain about how he says things. At least that's how I feel about him. I don't think he's got too many double meanings going on in his speech, but I don't know. it's hard. It's hard to figure out exactly what. Which comes down to great character writing. But that takes us up to week, week five, five, the core of a nine card spread. Can I throw one mm. more thing on week yeah, four? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. In the background of the cutscene, so we're looking at the hall in theory, you note the crashed derelict just sitting there as you're talking about the drifter. It mm. gives it a just it gives it a kind of foreshadowing look onto what could happen here. Now, obviously that's got to be a vision of something cuz if the hall is being dragged by the derelict, the derelict cannot in turn crash into the hall and you still be floating there. But <clears throat> Excuse well, me. but if he's, <laughs> if it's something that he's imagining, it could be. Exactly. And it's almost like he's putting himself in a nightmare here of being trapped in the hall itself. Mm-hmm. If if you go into the lore, obviously, everything he explains on that icy moon out in the middle of nowhere when they lost the light and they were freezing, he's the well, only one who walked away from that fire team. It right. Just be a flashback to that. Yeah, that and also kind of the the idea of the magician being kind of stuck between the spiritual merit, merit bleh, 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 spiritual and material. Wow, that was much more difficult than it should have been. Um, you know, he kind of the the bridge between spiritual and material is are is kind of the 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 catalyst that's used to materialize his. I don't want to say desires, but his goals, I guess, in in, in regards mm-hmm. to the magician. Um, and so with the hall being exactly kind of that, you know, that the other thing, too, I think we've kind of talked about this, too, is like, you know, what if he was what if there was the hall that he was on when he kind of ran into the stuff, which it, that doesn't really fit with everything as far as like time goes. But it is something that could mm-hmm. be, you know, if if they so the drift oh man um so the drifter has like a lot of different things that he you know we know he desires um you know one of them being a way to end the war between light bearers uh he he does not appreciate the the destruction that that causes uh which is where you kind of get the cuts or the not the cutscene but the mentioning of him searching for a way to kind of bring an end to that with the uh, what I refer to as the Yaslanas that they found on the icy planet, 
Um, but you know, if this is something that's manifesting his desires and goals, then that would also kind of make sense. If he got trapped in a, something akin to the hall, you know, he's desiring something that will defeat the light. Well, lo and behold, he finds a behemoth that, you know, defeats the light. And if he is, if he is indeed this, this magician chosen by the nine to manifest these things that he's imagining, then it would stand to reason that he can not only create things within the hall, but he can actually bring them into reality, which is a really weird convoluted rabbit hole that I don't really feel comfortable going down, but still is kind of akin to what's going on in this card with the, with the symbol of the magician, because that's really what the magician does is he takes the, he takes the elements that are represented in the, in the deck and he manifests what his goals are. So he he has the tools that he needs in order to manifest what he wants, and if you look that if you look at it being the drifter as the magician, the hall is the tool. Like he can manifest things Which, that he wants. Well, it's it's part of the tool. His the other half of it is the dark moats and the bank being able to pull forward the. Now, granted, he's not manifesting specific um, entities with those but he's pulling out all those uh taken right, right? the, the, yeah, the primeval and, and stuff like that and that's, yeah and i mean that's something he went and got before this right and that, the that's what started, I, that's what i meant I is, is like the time the timeline of that particular rabbit hole doesn't really it it doesn't hold up really well um because there's just there's a few little nuances like that because like yeah i mean the very first vision that we see with the drifter he already has a mode of dark he uses it. He he summons a taken with a mode of dark, and then gets given the hall. Like even in that cutscene, there are things that precede his being attached, or even theoretically knowing about the hall that would would you know kind of destroy that entire theory. But I do find it interesting that the hall has this this component, if you will, of you know the lantern, if you want to call it that. Um, to create things from from his imagination, I guess, is the best way to kind of explain mm-hmm. what it does. Um, it, it's just, it's interesting that that's what the hall does. And that's kind of what is being implied here with the magician is that that realization of something from a from a kind of like a platonic sense of form into reality. Uh, so you take the form that is the 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 idea, and you materialize it, and you actualize it into reality, uh, and that's kind of what the hall does. I just find that interesting there. And that the little portal we jump through is almost like that bridge point, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, because mm-hmm. even with uh, even within the uh, yeah, because yeah, I mean, even within the reckoning, the nine we do that. being. I mean, we talk about the nine being entities of a psychomutable space mm-hmm. or entities of a, a psychological area that their thought is what works with them the rules of physics in our world do not work for them and so the it's almost poetic that the nine and the emissary are choosing a very psychologically fraught and diverse tool <laughs> to explain the story mm-hmm. Well, and that, yeah, and that goes back to the communication, you know, the lexicon gap, if you will, or the lacuna coil of the nine. Because, I mean, the nine also have the the red box, you know, Mm -hmm. so they're not, they're they're getting better at communicating. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, we're <laughs> we're so we're moving in the right direction, if you will. It's not a box full of planet dust, but that's uh, true. <laughs> talking about communication and you know the the interesting there. Um, I do want to call out week five is if you again if you're keeping keeping count of this this is the fifth card in a in a what would be referred to as a nine card spread uh and this is this is a very important card in most nine card spreads because this is kind of the what's referred to as the anchor card or the the central core card um and this one is strength uh and i don't know green did you want to jump into that one so strength is what was it week yes. five week, week five six? this so, is the fun one week five this is this the one is, uh, that is, is about yes, us. And this is the one that there has been a lot of arguments about. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the cutscene where you basically are facing the bridge that when you're doing tier, was it tier two, tier two reckoning or tier three that you have to cross in order to finish. Um, you build the bridge in the reckoning. Part of the bridge is already built in this cutscene, and it is a conversation between the emissary and the nine again. And it is the nine asking the emissary what we as guardians want, and they refer refer to you as either him or her, depending on your um, your gender in game. And she, this is the fourth wall break, quote unquote, um, that. It's not um, it that rocked the internet that everyone freaked out about. But then, can Blue? Do you want to read this one? With uh, me? Yeah, sure. Let me, let me pull it up real quick. It's just easier than yeah. To no, I realized that halfway through. So I realized shorter. that halfway through when I did it, I was like, "This is a, this is why they did that." Uh, which one do you want me to? Which mm-hmm. one do you want me to be? You okay. read the nine. What does it want? Power. Like you. No one is like her. We don't understand. She has agency like you wouldn't believe. She can leave this place. This plane? We can leave this plane. Think bigger. She can leave this game. We don't understand. Then I'm afraid it's impossible to explain. So, obviously, the fourth wall idea break that was is the fact that they mentioned that she can leave this game. People freaked out thinking that was the fourth wall break. The game that they're talking about in this card isn't necessarily the game Destiny. It is the game that is going on between different powers within Destiny. Yes. So as far as what happened and what you had to do, this is the one on Mercury. This is the one that drove me crazy. (laughs) Um, And probably everybody else because... You had to go into the, the strikes, the infinite forest. Yep, because because hive hive on Mercury hive. was fun to find. Because yeah, there's cabal and vex on Mercury in the patrol areas, but there's no hive. <laughs> um, so you had to collect samples from all three. It took longer than any of the other ones to do, and that's including the one that the week the week was broken. Um. We haven't even gotten to that week, I don't think, have we? No, no, that was week nope. uh, eight or nine. Is that week six? Uh, it was later. It, was, late. anyway. it was much later, yeah. Yeah. So, the vision, yep, we talked about the vision and the fact that it is the discussion of how our character 
is able to be paracausal and go beyond the the causal and the predictive aspects of everything that we can leave this game so as far as strength as a tarot card there is the a couple different depictions of it the most popular one is one that has a lion and the woman gingerly stroking the lion's um, on its forehead and jaw. And even though it's known for its ferociousness, the woman has tamed this wild beast with her calming, loving energy. The lion is a symbol of raw passions and desires, and in taming him, the woman shows that the animal instincts and raw passion can be expressed in positive ways when inner strength and resilience are applied. She doesn't use force or coercion. She channels her inner strength to subdue and subtly control the lion. So this is obviously one interpretation of it and i'm sure there's other interpretations i think blue's interpretation in his uh notes is a little bit different too but Mm. it is the it is not through its strength of um character not strength of will strength of character strength of resolve rather than going and doing well strength of might and whatnot right it's not it's not a, a physical or even necessarily i mean it is and it isn't. It's a strength of a holistic sense. Uh, this is actually due to strength was actually, historically, it was originally fortitude. Uh, it was called fortitude. It was not called strength. Um, and actually, in the Thoth tarot deck, it's called lust, which is, an, that's a whole different thing. But um, in the in the Rider Waithe uh, decks, the fortitude is like, you know, you have, you have a picture in the Rythwaith Smith deck, you have the woman not just petting the lion; she's actually holding the jaw, the jaws of the lion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like you know, again, physical strength. But then you have the name of the card being Fortitude, which was an, in accompaniment with Temperance and Justice. Uh, and the meaning of Fortitude is, you know, it's called out as being a little bit different from the interpretation. It's meant to moderation of attitudes toward pain and danger, with neither being avoided but not necessarily actively wanted. So you just, it's, it's the fortitude, I I would dare say of acceptance. Um, You know, you have the, the kind of the, the associated keywords, if you will, of the card, uh, if it's upright is strength, courage, persuasion, compassion, influence. Uh, If you have the card reversed or, you know, upside down, you have keywords of inner strength, self-doubt, low energy, raw emotion. So again, it's it's kind of this holistic concept of strength or fortitude that's that's um, that's going on here. Um, and actually, in the same vein as the magician, we do have a an infinity symbol hovering over the head of the woman in most of the depictions as well. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know. Again, as as Green was mentioning, there are other other interpretations. Some decks will have her sitting on the lion. Some of them will have her hand resting on on top of the lion. Uh, lions are generally generally considered symbols of raw desire, raw passion, um, and so the idea is that in showing her as whether overwhelming or or placating him but basically taming the animal she is not just taming the animal she's also taming that animal instinct and that raw uh, passion that is something that if within humanity you know we have that duality of the lower and higher natures and if you can channel that and and uh, express that that base energy if you will 
in a in a way that's positive you can actually that's where you get into you know we were talking i believe it was a couple it was either last episode or the episode before that where we talk about the concept of flow um mm-hmm. it's it's something that uh you know it's it's interpreted as not using force or coercion necessarily but channeling that inner strength to subdue and subtly control those those passions and those 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 lower nature desires and channeling those that energy into something positive. Now, flip side is as as I was kind of saying, flip side is, you know, self-doubt, low energy, raw emotion, you know, that's where you kind of get into the fluidity of the meaning of the card. Um but yeah, yeah, no, I I I actually really like this card. I think this card is really interesting if we are going with this as being a tarot reading of of mm-hmm. any the strength card as being the core component of the the spread is a very interesting one. Uh, not just because this card could be read as being uh, men- this card could be read in relation to Orin as the emissary, but also to our guardian as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, Dwyer, I don't know if I did. I miss anything on the the keywords there? No, you got all the ones I have here. Cool. Um, yeah. So the twins. Yeah, this one was so so full full disclosure. This one was a little confusing to people because um, in most popular tarot card decks, there are no twins. Uh, there are the they are the card. lovers, uh, but the connection there is, I believe, the concept of the Gemini. Um, uh, so that's that's where you'll see kind of a, a confusion of terms maybe here. The game refers to them as the twin, or the the game refers to week six as the twins, but in tarot they're referred to as the lovers. Uh, so just just to clear that, I know that was kind of when that when that one hit the that weekend. Uh, I know that was actually a chat that went on for an hour or so on Twitter uh, between I think it was Anon and a couple other people. We were kind of back and forth between is this actually this card because there's not really another card it doesn't fit you know the the order naming convention so it's not a typical call there's n- not a single deck that i know of that calls them but there are the twins anyway moving on this is the first scene between Orin and the drifter that we see the hologram aspects of it while we're um essentially i'm trying to remember if you did trials of the nine you saw this same setting with the giant emissary and the celestial horse in the background Mm -hmm. well it's the backdrop essentially to this holographic story that is being played out in front of us but drifter and Orin. And it is the little bit about Namqui, which is and kind of sort of almost a beginning between Orin and Drifter and how Drifter's offering his shoulder for her to cry on, essentially. And to be real quick, Namqui, do you want to explain that particular uh, little connection I'm there? I'm trying to remember exactly who... I, Namqui, yeah, no worries. Nam, Namqui, Namqui was in Ignisus. Uh Namqui was the Awoken that Orin... Uh, connected with and actually built a life with after she was re-resurrected by uh, Gol, or her ghost. Um, Namki was actually, he had been doing a mission for the Awoken, or for the Reef, and his ship had gone down on Earth. And Orin 
kind of met up with him and he entertained her basically because everyone else was kind of leaving her alone because she was an awoken uh, and she had a lot of questions because she didn't remember anything and namki actually kind of helped answer a lot of those questions and explained a lot and then namki actually brought her back to the reef where he was he was punished for that because of queen's law but he took that punishment willingly and then also it allowed Oren to be re reintroduced to Mara, Sure, and um, that entire court, the court, because she she had been originally an emissary from the Reef. Uh, she she decided to abandon the Reef to try to win back the Awoken who had left Earth, and then in that process had actually died, and that's how she became a guardian. Um, and then she ran into Namqui. And so Namqui was kind of the the connecting linchpin between Oren and the Reef for a very long time. And Namqui, we actually, we actually, unknowing to us, we actually read Namqui's death way back. I want to almost say D1 or at, or at least early D2. Um, we had we had learned of the death of Namqui, but we didn't know the significance of that. So that was a connection back to... Um, Oh, I just blanked on the ship that he was on, but he was he was doing a reconnaissance of believe of the Cockatus area and mm-hmm. it uh basically didn't end well, let's just put it that way. Um and sh- that was the or- that so the death of Namki was kind of what drove Orin and served as a catalyst to Orin kind of going off on her own and then that led it's this like chain of dominoes, but that's what led her to uh, meeting up with Wu Ming, who was the drifter at the time. Um, and he was kind of looking for the nine in a way as well. Uh, she became obsessed with the nine uh, for very, for various reasons. Um, and then when she found out that Wu Ming was not actually drifter's name, she got mad and fully pulled the, the trigger and went off. And that was during the red war. So we, we kind of have Namqui Namqui is very important to Oren's story. Uh, and I think it's appropriate that we learn about not just Namqui, but also Drifter and Oren with this particular card, because again, the lovers, um, you know, and, and this is one of those things I had mentioned, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, this was just a rehashing of the, the lore book that we already had. That's that's fair. That's a fair assessment. But the other thing that I would say here is that this is particularly one within this cutscene that we actually hear a conversation between Oren and Drifter, and we actually get tone. We actually get the infliction of that conversation, whereas before it was just straight text. It was very difficult to there, there's there's things that are said that I'm like, OK, depending on how you say this, it could be, oh, we're 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 air quote friends or we're more than friends. You know, it in this kind of to me kind of confirmed my idea that the Drifter and Orn were a little bit more than just friends. Well, I mean, they they kind of address that a little bit later on in some respects, at least Oren does whatever this is, is, I think is what she says towards the end cutscenes. But uh, do we want to talk about the interpretation of the lover's card? Yeah, sure. Or unless do I do. Did you have something else? So my only thing, not only do we see, not only do we get the tone of the conversation, but we can see the drifters actions during it as well. Yes. Yeah, with the little true. flashes of character. And do you think we could just read the script for this sure. one quickly? Um, I'll take Drifter if you want to be Oren. I'm sorry. I just... I really miss him. Yeah, me too. How how did you say you knew each other again? 
we uh, Namki and me were were buddies. We met in a little dive on series. We used to play cards. He talked about he talked about you a lot. Said the queen trusts you to talk about the nine for her. <laughs> that true? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Doesn't seem important anymore. Yeah. Well, you ever need a shoulder to cry on? I'm here for you. So right there, the way he slides in the information about the nine. It's like, he's preying on her and he's trying to get her trust. And he's just like, I know you know about the nine. You do. I can talk to you about this. You can help me. And it's just so predatory from him right there. Mm -hmm. Very much so. It gives a little skew to the lovers. Well, and right. No. And I guess she fell in love with the idea of Wu Ming. Mm-hmm. Which is why later, especially in Ecdysis, when she finds out that Wu Ming is a is just a another name, it's not. It's Alias. and like the thing. The thing that I find really interesting is this is the introduction of the two, right? And I I totally get what you're saying with that whole like he has a motive here. I'm not denying that, but then in Ecdysis and in other parts of it. You see him actually, I, I, I'm I still kind of firmly in the camp that he really did see Oren as someone that he could trust. He grew to actually care for her. And that's why when she found out, you know, it was kind of like the, the very classical, he lies to get in with her and then falls for her. And then she finds out that, he, you know, it's the very classic romantic uh, tension story. Um, and then when she found out that Wu Ming was a lie, she got mad and left. And I think that really actually really hurt him because up until that point, you know, it was his first consequence, major consequence. Well, it wasn't his first, but I would say it was one of the major consequences. I would argue you was actually his first consequence or first major mm, consequence. The child. The child. Yeah. Um, because that I still think is a huge driving force with him. I think. You know, he mentions, I mean, he still mentions her. Uh, and that was, yeah, in the audio log. I mean, you finally you finally hear what her last words were. And it was like, that was just a gut punch. Um, a, yeah, well, like, it was a gut punch reading about you. And then when you actually learn what her final words to him were, it was like, oh, oh, God. Like, it was just uh, the emotions on that. Like, just thinking about, you've had that banging around in your head for centuries. Like, dude. I totally get your 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 anger on this. Um but I still see this as also and this is and we know that this uh this relationship if you want if you will allow me to call it that. This this has ended very recently because she leaves in the red war. You know, so she I mean it's it's again it's something that this has this is a this is a fresh wound if you will to a degree. His anger that he shows towards us learning about her and him is interesting. And I think that's probably, and we we call it a relationship. Um, I don't think it was a romantic one per se, which I think is part of the reason why Bungie really steered away from calling it the card of the lovers. Right, right. Calling no. this the lovers. Yeah. Well, I think they did that purposefully to try to avoid that. Yeah. Well, that too, but even the idea of love is expressed in Disney movies all the time. So it's not like it's it's not a T for teen thing, but the the concept of the twins, even though well, and so I guess what, what Black Flag Black Flag and Chad's actually kind of saying he he 
he has a tendency to put into words better what I want to put into words. So I'm just going to read it. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he said, well, he came to care for her in a way he didn't care for many people. And the thing is, is with him, everyone he ever trusted dies. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where I think it's like the wound that I was kind of mentioning is like he, as a, as a, as a introverted person, I recognize that because it's a very, it's a very real thing to be nervous about opening up to people because you don't like people are, you can't control them, right? That's, that's the thing. Um, and Mm -hmm. opening up is exposing yourself to being hurt. And from that perspective, if you look at it like that, um, him opening up and trusting someone in his history, every time he does that, they either, you know, die as you did, or in the case of Oren, they, he, he, you know, gets to a point where he trusts her and then she does he really give anything over to her as far as like entrusting her with something information or anything like that like um he, not not so much i, I think I dino think dino really... i think has the i think that's from mcdysis but there's a quote that says they make excuse after excuse to meet again every conversation is colored by excavated truths every day they feel they will reach some bedrock that will break them to pieces it is as frightening as it is intoxicating um I mean, and and this is this is totally my opinion. I I'm just you know just to be clear there, this is me reading into the the lore book and a couple of the other comments. But I I see him as as that type of character who puts on the shell of someone who's detached and you know the 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 rough tumble whatever. But to me, the the so like the event of you's death. Um, driving him to then go to Fellwinter to to get reprimanded or to get uh Dryden Dryden you know punished mm-hmm. and to 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 achieve justice in the true sense of justice um but he he does it in his own way right he does it in this in this very behind the scenes way he does everything he does usually has a a, a motive you see that and that right. you see, I mean, in, in Dwyer, you you hit it on the head with this one. Like you see that in this, in this particular cutscene. he has a motive. I mean, I'm not denying that he is not, oh, he's a con, he's man. A con man, right? Yeah. Through. I mean, he's, he is, but he's a con man who got his foot kind of stuck and not necessarily on romantical, but right. And I, I mean, and I guess he cares to me. The, the thing is, is that with the the holistic of everything else that revolves around him and Orn, I just get the distinct feeling that there was. It's kind of like my theory with uh, Saladin and Yolder. Like, there's very there there is nothing to point at being like, aha, they were you know in in whatever T for teen. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, there's that there's that part in that cutscene with Rise of Iron where that that very last glance just between them and it's like a second long but to me it was like okay that screams that there's something more going on to me and that's kind of a similar thing reading the lore books with Oren, reading you know seeing the the tone of these particular scenes the next couple of scenes included um it to me it just I, I just i can't help but get the feeling that there was something that that was more than what is being shown on the surface yeah, Dino. He went native. I mean, yeah. I mean, it. It right. It, it's not. It's not the best way to say it, but I. I really do think that. I just. That's just. Again, that's this. That's the sense that I get. Um, and I can't. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I can't really point to a particular 
any any single quote necessarily. It's just the overall sense that I keep that keeps coming up for me on on this particular these these particular two characters. If you want to look at the quote, him just begging her not to leave. Right. Well, and that's that was kind of the the linchpin. Well, that's the next scene, actually. Yeah, that's the linchpin, really, of what I was saying when I was talking about like the emotions. Like it, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know how I can see it differently. I can, to be, to be honest. <laughs> but before we get there, you want to talk about the the lovers card. All right. Um. So the lovers, uh, when it's facing upwards, it symbolizes love, harmony, relationships, values, alignment, and choices. Shown in reverse, it's self-love, disharmony, imbalance, and a misalignment of values. Again, it's the drifter. He's a shady dude. <laughs> um, in this instance, I see it more in the reverse personally. <clears throat> Excuse my voice for cutting out there. It's... I see the misalignment of values because she is hurt. She just found out about Namki. She's looking for some comfort and he's just trying to get his own way with things in this scene. He's trying to be like, oh yeah, I'm here for you. Woo, I'm the good guy. Cry on my shoulder and tell me everything you know. It's a complete disharmony and misalignment of values between the two. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm reading chat. And this, <laughs> there's still a debate on whether or not there was actual care between Drifter and Oren going on, mm-hmm. um, which is fair. It's fair to say that maybe Drifter is as detached, I guess, is this is the way I would put it, from not necessarily an emotional, at least a, a connection with Oren. Well, as, and the thing to... I mean, to, to I have a hard time seeing me. Well, and to kind of point, to kind of back your comment up about the detachment too, we do know that Drifter is one of the oldest Risen. Like, that has been kind of softly mentioned before. Uh, right. He, he, so he's been around a long time. And the we while we don't know, like, the exact timing of the whole thing with you, um, we do know that, you know, again, it's still banging around in his head and that was what a couple months ago that we learned that so i mean Mm -hmm. detachment is not a huge surprise to me if you have that type of stuff in your head you know when you're when you experience that type of thing and you have that trauma or ptsd whatever you want to refer to it as um going around constantly and you're an immortal you know it's it's you you are kind of you know excuse me but you're living in your own hell at that point and so detachment, again, this is where I kind of said this in chat. I kind of, you know, I, I find it a hard, I find it hard to accept the simplistic idea that there are people who can't, who are incapable of attachment. Um, because even, even in severe cases of sociopathy and, and which is, you know, literally the definition of not being able to necessarily attach, there are still, um, there are still desires to have a connection. Now, what they interpret as, you know, what what a, an individual that align or that a, um, I don't want to say affliction because that's not the right word, but uh, a person of that mental state finds to be connection. I'm air quoting around air, the connection there. That's different than what an, uh, a quote normal human or normal individual would identify as connection right but there is still a need a still a desire humans are at the core of our being 
really, really social creatures, even though most there are some of us who desire to not necessarily be as involved or as extroverted as the other, there is still a driving need to have at least some form of connection with another another thing, another intellectual creature. Um, and so when I'm looking at that, and then you also combined in like the trauma that we do know that he has, the individuals who are in a traumatic you know loop of that nature connection is actually a really really strong balm for that wound and so that's where i'm kind of i mean i i'm definitely admittedly reading into the the information here but i can't help but see that as being part of drifter's story i also am kind of sympathetic i really kind of want i want the multi-dimensional characters that bungie has a tendency to write um and you know with drifter there's a lot of a lot of attention to detail being put into him as we kind of discussed with his his being dressed for his own funeral you know like i mean how how they'd never have called that out really but yet it's it's there and it's a constant part of his character so when you're putting that much detail into a character i find it i find it hard to say that just simplistically no he's just using her I think and, and I think there's he could be oh, yeah, like, right, and I and I and, and I and it very much so could have started out that way, which it very much so shows that it does start out that way because what Dwyer said about him leaning in, he wants something. Her. Oh, thank he you, Dino. Dino hit us with a hit us with another quote. I believe that was Ecdysis, Uh but synthesia. Uh, yeah, what was that? Oh, synthesia. Okay. Um, Okay, thank you. He says, Wu Ming leaves his questions by the wayside as he is drawn inexplorably into the gravity well of her desperate honesty. Her confessions lower his defenses. He talks of himself, of his fear of his loneliness, how he feels he is one fingernail away away from plummeting into an abyss, how he feels vicious resentment every time he is brought back from the dead. He never asked for the gift of the light. And that is, I think, his tipping point, which moves him from... And then verse, right, right. And I was going to say also his obsession with the jade coin. I mean, which is given to him by Missy. Well, the coin was what Orin took with her. The coin, mm-hmm. the jade she coin. She gives it back to him in the first scene, though. Right. Let me. I want to pull that scene up. I swear uh, that that coin is given back to him in one so, of the scenes. So in in week nine, she gives him a new coin. Um. But I don't, re- I don't remember. I don't. I honestly don't remember. Um, I'm, I'm watching it right but, now. Um, Continue your thing. But the coin and the snake imagery is both. A, th- those are both very strong attachments to Orin. Um, and then you have the entire allegiance quest tension, where we kind of figure out that Ikora does actually know every, well, not everything, but she does know quite a bit about what the Drifter is really doing. And you also get the sense that they are both aligned in the in the desire to air quote again. I, I hate this is the part of the podcasting I don't like is because you can't see my air quotes. Rescue the emissary from the nine. Uh, they they have various. I, I would argue they have different reasons, but they both kind of have this sense of they are very interested in seeing the emissary released from the control that the nine have over her. It's, I think it's also the idea that if anyone can bring her back, it's the man she found as an anchor in right. her time before. Her I, I I agree wholeheartedly, which is, I think, very... I kind of read that in the Allegiance quest, where Anor, when Anor finally kind of... kind of it, It's a light bulb over Anor's head. She was like, oh, 
oh, like <laughs> you can you can kind of <laughs> see that shift in in that perspective. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I agree. I think that is entirely where at least Ikora might be. You know, as I assume that's where that is where she's kind of coming from. Uh, Hex is asking, yes, uh, Orin had a tattoo of a snake on her forearm. Yes, and Drifter talks about a time when he ran with the Pilgrim Guard, I believe. Yeah, which is... he knew a titan with a snake on her forearm at that juncture. Yeah, and she gets really hesitant, she covers it up, she doesn't want to reveal to him. Which is kind of adorable. On the note of what you just read from Synthesia, I would just want to read the preface paragraph to the same tab in that card. Wooming is ravenous for her stories of the Nine. He asks whether she's met them, whether they can give a man power, whether they know a way out of the solar system. Orin cannot answer any of his questions, but she cannot keep her own stories down. She is sick with them. They come out in a compulsive, bilious stream, and when she is emptied, she talks of herself, of her grief, of her restlessness, how she feels the most alive in the empty spaces between blinks, how she feels she is a snake perpetually sloughing away its skin, except this last molt is all wrong, and she's caught. she is caught in the ghost throat of her old self. I think it's everything where she opens up to him right. about her life. It's infectious. About, yes. I don't believe he himself would have opened up if that had not happened. He sees almost a mirror of himself and her, the pain that she's been through, the pain that he's been through. And it allows him to have that sort of, I would call it trust, with what he can reveal to her about himself, given it's under the guise of him still being Wu Ming, not Eli, not Dredgen, not anyone else that he actually is. But it's a start for him. Um, but you see right there at the beginning, though, he's ravenous for the stories of the night. He's still prying and prying and trying to find out all the information he can until she can finally break his walls down. So I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's as much him opening up to her or because she opened up so much to him that he finally felt maybe this would be better. Which is, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry, as you were talking, I, I kind of was reading over the lover's card and the the imagery of the serpent and the card, um, because serpents, you know, are temptation, right? Um, the serpent and the apple tree represent the temptation of sensual pleasures that take away one's focus from the divine. And and I'm just I'm my brain being what it is uh, connect. You know, we're talking we're talking in chat right now about how conversations around Orin are always very snake focused. You have slawing of the skin, which she just mentioned there when she was talking to him. Uh, you refer there's a reference to uh, shedding the scales of her past or shedding the scales to see her past life when she becomes the emissary. Um, she has the tattoo of the snake, you know, all this stuff. And then you have the drifter who is the magician who is about materializing things and, you know, focusing on a divine, you know, making things real and all this. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, is Orin supposed to be the snake that's tempting the drifter off the path? Is that is that maybe something? I don't I Does that mean she's also the snake now as the emissary? Well that's what I mean. Is or is her becoming the emissary a rectification of her I man, there's that. That's another dangerous tangent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of dangerous tangents to have with this. <laughs> with yeah, with the nine, yeah, with these the two. nine Orin Drifter, everything that's going yeah. on with these, this entire 
story path in general. Um, there's points from pretty much every card that you can debate and go down tangents that there's no true base for. Even if you look, the first card we had in this, um, when she's just talking to us outside the cutscene, she mentions that people who have transcended their design being the dredgen, the hourglass, and, and the, the blade, blade. sharpened anew. Mm -hmm. We don't know who any of them are other than Drifter. And so many theories have come up for the other two that yep. it's just you can open up so many paths and wormholes and spin foil hats everywhere. <laughs> mm -hmm. Was there anything else on the card itself we wanted to dive into? No. I mean, I, not for me at least. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, let me let me rephrase that. Yes, but I'm not going to, because we'll we'll yeah, be there's... here we'll be here for another day. I mean, we were on this one for almost 20 minutes at this point, which is easy to do because the relationship, quote unquote, between um, Orin and Drifter is an interesting topic. Which brings us to the next one, the tower, and he, right? And here was your nice bugged never working oh yeah god that week sucked um, you just have it in the in the in the queue and you're just like i want to get it done oh yeah because it jumped it jumped from like the 26th to the what 10th was that wasn't that the yeah that was the one that like it we had to wait like two weeks for them to release the patch for um... yeah because this was the one with the tangled yep tangled shore because the Vex, the yep. Vex weren't registering in the yep. strike. The strike was registered yep. as being on Earth, not the Dangle Shore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was, I was like, oh, man. Uh, but yeah, so. So yes, this was the one hollowed layer strike on the Tingled Shore. And the samples that we had to get were Hive, Scorn, and <gasps> Vex. Which caused <laughs> which caused problems. Because <laughs> um, it was the Warden yeah, strike hol the hollowed right? layer. Yeah, it was the Warden of Nothing. Basically, mm -hmm. it it was, <laughs> it was. I was like, oh man, that's 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 sad. Anyways, uh, the vision here is the one that actually is pretty pretty raw and emotional as well. Uh, this is the one that Orin basically tells Drifter that she's leaving. Uh, mm -hmm. She's packing her stuff, and all his stuff is in boxes to the left, and he can get out. Um. And she re did you just make a musical? I reference? did. I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, this is also where you kind of get another sense of emotion into text that we had read about. Um, also, um, this is a pre uh, a prelude to the cutscene that we get because this is where she she kind of calls him Dredgen. She calls him Dredgen here, and his response is the same as in the cutscene. I don't use that name anymore. Um, and so, you know, that's where, again, she kind of... This is after she has found out that Wu Ming has, is not who he is. Uh, and so there's that, the whole thing. And then she kind of just basically like, bye. Now, we also do get a mention of Drifter referring to a thousand years of travels, Traveler's Dogma. You know, again, I don't know if that's that's a actual time or if they they never um, or if it's just like hyperbole or something of his nature, which I know a couple people have pointed out could be the case. Um, yeah, I don't I, I think that's pretty much my summary of that one. Uh, this is another one with the the giant 
drifter or not giant drifter wow that'd be terrifying the giant emissary (laughs) god i just had a mental image of that flashing through my head and that was terrifying uh the emissary yeah staring down flipping a coin um it's the giant emissary on the pool the the hacky sack would take a whole new at that point (laughs) all right so anyways the symbolism of the tower (laughs) right so the tower follows immediately after the devil and all tarot that contain it and is associated with sudden disruptive revelation and potentially destructive change. Uh, according to the scene that we get with Drifter and Orin at this point, it is a massive change very quickly because Orin says, I'm leaving, goodbye, whatever this is, friendship, quote unquote, I'm done. And then the tower itself shows a tower, tall tower perched on top of a rocky mountain. Lightning strikes at the building alight, and two people leap from the windows, head first and arms outstretched. It is a scene of chaos and destruction. The tower itself is a solid structure, but because it has been built on shaky foundations, it only takes one bolt of lightning to bring it down. It represents ambitions and goals made on false premises. The lightning represents a sudden surge of energy and insight that leads to a breakthrough or revelation flowing down from the universe through the crown chakra. The people are desperate to escape from the burning building, not knowing what awaits them as they fall. Around them are 22 flames representing the 12 signs of the zodiac and 10 points of the tree of life, suggesting that even in times of disaster, there is always divine intervention. When presented upright in the spread, the card represents sudden change, upheaval, chaos, revelation, and awakening. However, if presented reversed, the card represents personal transformation, fear of change, and averting disaster. This like sums up their relationship so well. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Some of the different imagery for the tower is interesting because um, in some imagery, there's a crown also that is falling, not just the person. And in some cards, it is only one person, not two people. Most of the time it is with two people, but I have seen it with just singular and they're falling out. So personal revelation that what else is in at the picture? Yeah, the crown is falling off as well. I'm seeing that through a lot of them. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Even in the All more right. simplistic. Well, do you have any other things to add, Lynn Dwyer? Um, the card itself, not so much. Uh, you wrapped up those keywords from it. Uh, the tower is just always... It, In my opinion, the tower, to me, just visually looking at an image of the tarot card, especially in the more ornate version, it's just chaos. Everything's falling apart. Well, not literally, but it's burning lightning striking people are jumping from the tower to save themselves the crowns falling off the top um it's like the words say it's an upheaval it's a change it's a very large disruption of everything going on so it's quite fitting for this cutscene <laughs> yep 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 move on to the hangman since we mm-hmm. kind of wrap this guy up yep invitation yep. eight week nine because of the the hiccup in the prior week drifter sees Orin as the emissary. It's interesting. Okay, so the card, the the way this inter- interaction reads is very weird because Drifter asks her if she wants to play some gambit as the emissary, and then she, I don't know. It's just this card or this scene bugs me in some ways. Should we just read it? It's just it's hard to describe this one. Sure, you want me to be Drifter? Mm-hmm. Hey, how you living, sister? What can old Drifter do for you today? 
Want to play some Gambit? The Dredgen has visions. They disturb him. At this point, the silhouettes of the three triangle pyramid ships, they briefly appear next to her. You know about those, huh? You the one causing them? Tell you right now, I don't appreciate what they say. The gift is showing you what you must see. It is your fate. No, I make my own choices. If that is what you want to believe. Freaking psycho. Triangle ships. Everyone freaked out about that one. Um, (laughs) Which, it's interesting because the Drifter did not know that the Nine were sending the visions, per se. But... Or are they sending the visions that Nine just know about them? We don't necessarily know for sure either direction, do we? No, because they don't actually confirm or deny it. (laughs) Right. So um, with that being said, that is another indication of him being, quote unquote, the magician or the magus, the foreseeing of the future aspect of it. But it's just, it's weird because he doesn't, he this must be before is this the timeline aspect of this drives me crazy is this before he gets the hall it would have to be before he gets the hall Mm, no because no No, guardian jumps into another port because because he has the hall when he shows up right and she's saying the gift is showing you what you must see it's just so that's the hall though because it he's acting like he doesn't necessarily is he being sarcastic how you living, sister? What can old Drifter do for you today? I want to give him like this Brooklyn accent. I thought I think it. I think he's yeah. I think he's being like kind of facetious sarcastic. because I mean, okay. Be, the thing is, is like that's that's the front that he puts on, right? You know, that's that's the thing when uh, that's the mask he wears. Is even even with our characters, he has that. You know, even with the characters that he kind of interacts with outside of our characters. He, that's that's a very consistent uh, presentation of himself with the Drifter pseudonym. Like in the same way that Wu Ming had the, the bartender thing and then, you know, Jermaine had the the uh, the down the down to earth kind of I'm just a regular human. Farmer. Yeah, farmer. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to figure, think of a word. Farmer kind of mentality. Like mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's the it's the mask that he has he has attributed to being quote drifter. Um, mm-hmm. And I just I love the fact that she refers to him as the Trenchin. <laughs> I just love the fact that she keeps referring to him as. It's like I remember this. I don't like you. You lie. You mm-hmm. lied to me. I think she remembers pretty much everything doesn't she wasn't, yeah that's, wasn't that it's part a, of the deal yeah that's kind of Almost. the implied that that was part of the deal was i can't remember the exact phrase but it was mm-hmm. something about like the scales the scales fall away and she remember she basically remembers all her her stuff mm-hmm. which is weird because she has the three previous lives as the human on exodus green then the awoken, awoken life yeah. and then the guardian life yeah, so i mean she's she's got yeah. a bit of knowledge bouncing around in her head and woe, woe to everyone to if she three lives yeah worth. woe to anyone if she uh she gets her freedom mm-hmm. what about the actual hanged man card um so the hangman is is an interesting one because a lot of people you you say hangman and people you know have a very very strong picture of a guy hanging by his neck um actually the hangman is usually portrayed as an image of a man being hanged upside down by one ankle and it's usually from a T-shaped cross made of living wood. Uh, and the reason why is that this method of hanging was actually a very common punishment at the time for traitors in Italy. 
Uh, so again, going kind of historically back to when these cards were originally kind of made. Um, however, uh, you will notice on most cards that they, the man does not wear anything. He has a very solemn expression. Uh, and traditionally, that actually suggests that he is there by his own accord. And so what a lot of times this card is seen as representing is self-sacrifice more so than corporal punishment of uh, a criminal enterprise, if you will. Um, he is hanging upside down, which means that he views the world from a completely different perspective, and his facial expression is calm and serene, suggesting that he is in this hanging position by his own choice. Also interesting to note is that he often is perceived, or he's often portrayed as having a halo around his head, which is usually symbolized, uh, symbolizing new insight, awareness, and enlightenment. It is usually his right foot that is bound to his bound to the tree, but his left foot is, uh, remains free, and it's bent at the knee and tucked in behind his right legs. He uh, he usually has his arms bent with ha- with hands held behind his back, which forms an inverted triangle. Uh, generally, color-wise, he's wearing red pants, which is, again, the passion, uh, blue vest, which is knowledge, and this is usually kind of all summed up in this is the card of what's referred to as ultimate surrender. Uh, you're being suspended in time and of martyrdom and sacrifice to the greater good. Uh, when we see when when this card is presented as upright in a spread, uh, it represents pause, surrender, letting go, new perspectives. However, when it's reversed or when it's presented reversed, it's seen as representing delays, resistance, stalling, and indecision. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, again, really kind of on the nose with the drifter here. I think the I think the to me the idea is is trying to figure out a way to get the reverse card presented upright um because you know again you kind of have the the resistance of the the gift is showing you what you need to know and he's like no 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 I'm not doing it like that's that to me is right there that's that's classic you know resistance and and it's kind of because the drifter doesn't pick sides is the other thing is like he really is kind of the amorphous like a moral character and by getting involved with the triangle ships with the the darkness you know all this stuff he's always played both sides he always he always has this thing about the power of the darkness and the power of the light can be combined so he's always been on that fence and you know with these these in these uh impending attack from the tribal or from the traveler from the triangle ships um the side's going to need to be chosen you know if you you have to make a choice really is what it seems like it's kind of coming down to and what choice are you going to make on the reverse note the entire first line is just him stalling any conversation with her. <laughs> that's yeah yeah no she's not there to play gambit come on <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i don't i don't know if you guys had anything else with Hangman, Hangman is one of the fun tarot cards that, like, it's kind of like the next card, actually, Death. Um, everyone has, like, this negative view of it, but it actually, it's actually not overt. Yeah, it's actually not overtly negative. It can be, but it's not, it's, it's not necessarily intended that way. Speaking of Death, um, this is actually a card that did not require us to do a strike. We had to complete matches of quick play, rumble, and competitive in Crucible. Uh, just complete. You didn't have to win, lose, get a certain number of points. You just had to complete them. 
Uh, thankfully, the weekend that, that we got it, you could double dip with, uh, I think it was Rumble and Competitive. I can't remember which one. It was one one of them, if you played one, you could play it in both. Yes, uh, Rumble counted with Quick Play and uh, Rumble. So that one was an um It was the only week we did not have to do a strike, right? Right. Which yeah, and we nice. didn't collect we didn't collect material. Um, but this is also one of the ones that again the internet kind of blew up with because this is the vision of the emissary not only bidding farewell to the drifter, uh, but she also kind of gives him the instruction to continue the game that he is playing, which is Gambit Gambit Prime. Uh, and she returns a coin to she, she at the beginning of the scene she like he flips the coin and it mm-hmm. disappears. Which is, I just I love that, and because she, she floats basically, and uh, when she returns the coin, you know the coins that always have the indication of what enemies we're going to be facing in Gambit, the coin has a new icon, and that icon is that of the pyramid yep. ship. So and the no, go for it, go for it. The the way the vision starts is we have another truth to share with you, which they're talking to, um, talking to us as guardians. The Drudgeon should have showed, told you himself, but he, as always, he fear keeps him from true potential. Please open your mind. And then the vision starts, and you get the vision of the, the triangle ship coin, finally, um, telling Drifter to keep playing the game. And then there is a tag on the end of it on the Ishtar site. Was this part of the vision at the end? Or is this just something you get from the from the emissary at the end? The night falls out there on the edge. Your fate is a war unseen amid ruined fleets. Two women, feared, untrusted, forever at arm's length. Here, at home, your fate is a coin in the hand of a liar. One man, afraid, untrustworthy, forever grasping. You must reckon with yourself. Can you see the path ahead? Do you know the shape of your trial? I'm trying to remember where that actually I can't remember. It was was either on this one or number eight. I can't remember. It's... It's tagged on on Ishtar at the end of nine, but it has the visit eight link above it, which kind of is a little confusing. I want to ask. No, that's that's um, on the end of nine. Dexter. That's on the end of okay. nine. Because I don't remember eight because that came after the horse, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the horse was the last one. Which was, oh my gosh, that was so funny. Yeah. What the? <laughs> right? Because Drifter sees the horse and freaks out. <laughs> Which I think is everybody's reaction to when they first see the dang horse. It's like, what? It's because it's, if you haven't seen it in a game, oh, okay. it is a Because he, he turns around and then the horse. emissary's like right. right in front of him, the head. And the He's giant like, okay. Mm-hmm. God, it's such a weird moment. So, the message of the card death in tarot. Symbolism of the card death. The death card shows the messenger of death, a skeleton dressed in black armor riding a white horse. The skeleton represents the part of the body which survives long after life has left it. The armor symbolizes invincibility and that death will come no matter what. Its dark color is that of mourning and the mysterious, while the horse is the color of purity and acts as a symbol of strength and power. Death carries a black flag decorated with a white five-petal rose, reflecting beauty, purification, and immortality, and the number five representing change. Together, these symbols reveal that death isn't just about life ending. Death is about endings and beginnings, birth and rebirth, change and transformation. There is beauty in death, and it is an inherent part of being alive. 
a royal figure appears to be dead on the ground, while a young woman, child, and bishop plead with the skeletal figure to spare them. But, as we all know, death spares no one. In the background, a boat floats down the river, akin to the mythological boats escorting the dead to the afterlife. On the horizon, the sun sets between two towers, which also appears in the moon tarot card. In a sense, dying each night and being reborn every morning. The death card is probably the most feared and misunderstood of all the tarot cards in the tarot deck. What most don't realize is that the death card can be one of the most positive cards in the deck. Upright, death is a card of transformation and typically refers to needing to start over by letting go of the past. In the reverse position, death can mean that you are on the verge of meaningful change, but are resisting it. You may be reluctant to let go or that you may not know how to make the change you need. You still carry harmful viewpoints from your past that may interfere with a new opportunity. Because you were because of your refusal, life has stagnated and you feel stuck in limbo, aka drifter. Cause he can't move on. He can't he can't let go of things. Yeah. He doesn't just live in the past. No. Drifter. So death, the sh- the imagery of the horse and the the fact that he sees the horse in the vision, do you think that is a a callback to the tarot card? I think it could be. Um, it's, it would be a nice mirror for them to do that. Unfortunately, we do see the horse in other cutscenes, and you see the constellation of the horse in the background, so I don't know if it's just intentional, or if that horse has a second symbology within the game that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Anything to add, Blue? Um, I mean, I don't know. Like, the, the whole thing with, like, death and horse, I think, um, I kind of agree with you. I think I think there's more to the horse because again, hor- the horse was in Trials of the Nine way back. This is not something that's like um, this isn't something that is new to the invitations, right? Um, I mean, a horse a horses like you want to talk about the the meaning of horses as a symbol. It's it's predominant. Uh, you have like, you know, freedom without restraint is a very universal understanding of what a horse means. Um, you know, power, depending on what type of tribe the Native American tribes would re where Native American tribes often viewed horses as symbolic of power. Like the, the number of horses that you had was indicative of the power that you held. Uh, there are symbols of traveling movement, you know, desire, you know, all these other things. Um, whereas like the, the horsemen of the apocalypse, which is one, one of which is death, uh, you know, the reasons they were on horses was because at the time of the, the, the writing of that particular book, uh, horsemen were the most power, one of the most powerful figures on the battlefield, uh, simply because when your predominant number of army and your, your army is predominantly foot soldiers or archers, a horse can overrun people. Um, and so when you had specific, uh, horsemen, that was a very big, that was a very big deal within a armed conflict. Um, so, I mean, yeah. And then, and then there's also my, my personal issue with that is that death death's horse is a very particular horse um it's usually white or gray uh depending on which translation you go with uh it's also sometimes represented commonly more modern than than historically uh it's represented as a skeletal horse not necessarily even a full horse 
Um, whereas the celestial horse or the cosmic horse, whatever you want to call it in the trial or in the, the, I don't even know what it's with the, I'm blanking on the, the location, but the vision, um, is, is a black horse that is, uh, that has stars within it. Uh, it's much more of a cosmic horse. It's much more of something. I mean, I agree. I think it's something else. I, I could be wrong, but I, I really think that it's, it's something different because again it was there before the invitations happened i think it's a callback definitely to that realm but i i get i don't know i have a feeling that it's something else personally mind if i spin foil for a minute go for it go and go into the astrophysics classes i had taken what if it's a call to where this threat is coming from yeah we don't know yeah that's bingo so we have the outline of the horse dark with the stars. Now the horse head nebula is a giant ball of gases waiting to become stars and still forming. So what if that is what it's calling to itself, saying that the impending threat is coming from the horse head nebula? Just giving it a nice there, location. I mean, that has been theorized for a while now. There's also callouts to a couple different locations in some of the other cards. Um, I'm blanking. So there's um, a couple different locations that have been mentioned in game in relation to the to I'm trying to remember if it's directly to the nine or not. I I am blanking on what cards they are. Beard would know them off the top of his head, likely, but it's one of those things that there have been a couple locations in space that have been pointed out to us in the cards, whether or not they actually have any manifestation of um, consequence. I'm not sure, because it is an awfully big symbol to say that, hey, something's coming from the Horsehead Nebula. Okay, that's great. What? Why do we care? We're still stuck in Seoul. You see what I mean with that? It's just, it's, it would be interesting, but I, there's, no, there's no other part of the story that really coalesces with it. So there's no, this is the home planet of where the Cabal are from, or this is where the hive, where the fundament was, or this is this, and we have no connection to draw those two together at the moment. And it's, it would be cool if it was, but I want to know the reason why. Why is it being made to be such a big deal? All right, so the reason I was asking about the Dark Horse Nebula is <clears throat> it's, so to kind of clear, the Dark Horse Nebula is a dark nebula, which is, it looks like the side of a horse, that's hence the name. But the uh, location of it is really interesting because it is in the equatorial constellation Ophiuchus, which is uh, translated as <gasps> Serpent Bearer. So the Dark Horse Nebula is within the Serpent Bearer, you know, which is kind of a, just to me, it's a little bit of an interesting connection there. Um, and it, it's... Uh, it borders Scorpius and Sagittarius, um, and it's a very large part of what's referred to as the Milky Way's Great Rift. Um, so, yeah, it's just location-wise, it's just an interesting, interesting connection there. Anyway, I'm trying to think. Okay, so for as far that's all of the invitations. There are a few more references to tarot cards in various other things. Um, when you play, I think Bloom mentioned this at the beginning. When you play. Is it Reckoning? It is Reckoning. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, level yeah, three. Tier three, you encompass, or not encompass, you encounter, I'm getting tired, you encounter the Hermit on certain weeks. When you're not fighting Oryx, you go down beneath everything and you encounter the Hermit, which you have to kill to activate the Pool of Light, which 
then the giant knights with axes spawn and come and attack you. And they, that the pool of light is what gives you the buff to actually damage them, and you have to eventually kill them. The hermit so, is. Hmm? I was going to say, but the naming of those two knights is what's right. interesting. So the naming of the two knights is the two of swords and the eight of swords, which those are pip cards. Which pips are the counters. If you don't know what pips are, um, like there are pips on a die. Like if you have a pair of dice, the the dots on the dice are pips. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. So the two swords, um, the two of swords is when somebody gets this card in tarot reading, the message is clear. Stop listening. Use mine. Your thoughts are in conflict with another. And this is not helping. Your heart knows all is well. It is time to move on from you suffer. And if you trust your heart, you will move on to a much better and healthier situation right away. The moon is with you, the sky and sea and heart. And this is obviously from a website where they're they're giving you their interpreting of it. It's basically move on, get past it, and you'll and be in a better sim- situation. The image, the image too, is a blindfolded yes. woman. And then the with two of... swords. <laughs> Just yes. sorry, sorry, yeah. didn't mean to interrupt. No, you. you're good. And then the eight of swords. There's going to be eight swords on the card, and I don't remember the imagery. Off it's the top a bound of woman. She. It's a woman that's bound and blindfolded bound as and well. Blindfolded. All right, so if you have the Eight of Swords in your reading, chances are you feel bad about something you have said or done to someone else. Most likely someone who really matters to you. You might be feeling guilty or embarrassed. You might even find yourself internally paralyzed, like you just can't guesstimate what to say or do next. Which, if these are manifestations of drifters, personality, conflict, conscious, whatever you want to call it, if this is an intentional manifestation of it that's really interesting and if it's an unconscious manifestation of it it's also very interesting because the the fun thing with the eight of swords is what's called out is that the bindings to the figure are not complex Mm -hmm. so the the whole thing is like if you remove uh the if you remove the blindfold you can see it the other thing that's interesting with the swords cards is that they're, and this ties back into the the, exper- the, the challenge of the reckoning, is that there's pools of water, yeah. um, and in the same way, in the exp- in the encounter, there is the pool, the giant pool of water around you. The interesting thing there is that if you touch that water, you actually you get damaged; light. it drains you, um, and so there's there's that. Uh, I was going to say there was one other thing actually i wanted to interject with oh the sword the the entire suit of swords uh is is a kind of an interesting thing because the the suit of the swords is kind of usually associated with action change oppression ambition courage and conflict uh and as with everything else it can be constructive or destructive um but the negative aspects of the suit usually include anger, guilt, harsh judgment, of lack of compassion, and verbal and mental abuse. Drifter. Poor Drifter. <laughs> Chat. The, the man hermit. needs more hugs. Yeah, he does. <laughs> the man needs to let people hug him. Right. Well, and, it's and Dino actually. isolation so many times. Right. And that actually brings us to the hermit. Mm-hmm. Which Dino kind of makes the comment too. And in order to defeat the two and eight and two and eight of swords, you need to defeat the hermit, which is 
When you have a hermit presented reversed, it means isolation, loneliness, withdrawal. Um, the the description usually kind of runs that the hermit stands alone on the top of a mountain. Uh, he has chosen this path of self-discovery and as a result has reached a heightened state of awareness. He often is presented as holding a, um, a lantern with a six-pointed star. Um, and so that's that's akin to the the um, the lantern that you achieve when you you knock him down in the encounter because he drops a pool of light. And so usually what it is referred to as the hermit walks his path, the lamp lights his way, but it only illuminates the next few steps rather than the full journey. Um, so the concept there again is that change that that you know needing to continue to move forward. Um, and so there, there's that kind of thing. And, and Dino made the really cool point or the really good point there is that, you know, you need to defeat the representation of isolation in order to defeat the, the two and eight of swords, Break him which out of is problem, un, unbind the blindfold, mm-hmm. break him out of the isolation in order to allow him to see what the situation is. So, I mean, I, I kind of, the more and more we talk about it and the more and more I kind of read into, you know, especially reading into like the way you can read a nine card spread, uh, which I don't think we'll have time to get into necessarily, no, but, no, um, um, the more and more I read of it just as a kind of my closing thought on it, if you will, let me is, uh, this is actually a tarot reading for the drifter. This is, this is actually something that is a commentary on what is going to be necessary for the drifter to achieve whatever it is that the nine have intended for him to achieve, uh, which actually is an interesting, to me, it's kind of an interesting thing because it kind of sets him up to be much more important than I think some people might have assumed. I find it also interesting that the moment you kill the hermit, the room is flooded with light. You're able to see, you're able to. Right. Well, it, 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 uh, it removes the blindfold, right? Yeah, it illuminates everything. So not only is physically illuminating the area and allowing you to damage the two and eight, but the metaphor is there for it as well. So. The one thing about your interpretation of this being a reading for Drifter is the connection of Mara within it. I understand our connection to him. I understand everything else. The connection between Mara and Drifter himself is kind of Continuous, mainly because in my mind, just because it's mainly a connection with the nine Mara and dealing with that. So the the card the high priest is showing up and talking about the duality and everything really makes me wonder what her role is in relation to him. If this is truly a reading for well, him, well, if you look at it as the nine setting up tools, I mean, what? Okay, so if in the spread. Each position means something different. What is position three? Uh, it depends on so it depends on which which read you're doing. The it's read. the top right corner, right. Uh, and like mm-hmm. it's just again it depends. Like if you do if you read so you can read the central card which is five again the signif- uh, the significant anchor card. Uh, you have corner mm-hmm. reads which is so your your spread is three rows. And three columns: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, so it's one, two, three on the top row, four, five, six on the second row, it's seven, a, eight, nine on the yeah. bottom row. Uh, nine card it's spread. If you read the it's corners, you read one, three, seven, and nine. You can either you have a choice. You can read that clockwise, or you can read it as an X. So you'd read one and nine, and three and seven. Um, you know, again, 
Uh, it's usually used to kind of frame the situation. Uh, then you can read horizontally, which is one, two, and three are reviewed at, or seen as your conscience. Your four, five, and six is your reality or your current state, day-to-day life. And then seven, eight, nine is the unconscious, the undercurrent. Uh, if you read it vertically, one, four, and seven is the past. Two, five, and eight are the f- uh, present. And then three, six, and nine is the future. Uh, and so there's that. And then mirroring is, so it's going to get kind of weird pretty quickly. Mirroring is, uh, you read one, five, nine or three, five, seven, or you read one, five, nine and then three, five, seven. So you make an X and read the two arms. Uh, and this is the, this kind of gets into the concept of diagonals, which is kind of where you get the, which is where you get the corner. If you go back to the top, that's the corner too. So there's, there's, like I said, there's multiple ways to read a nine card spread. And then a nine card spread actually is a building block into, uh, what's referred to as the great tableau, which is the, uh, I believe it's a 36 card, uh, spread. So, you know, it it gets very convoluted very quickly. Um, and again, this is, this is like, this is if you're getting a tarot reading, you know, and we kind of mentioned that at the top of the show, or maybe it was before the show, I can't remember. Um, but a lot of times what a lot of people will do is they'll just draw a card throughout for the, in the morning and kind of use that as a, a way of self-analysis. Um, but this is the more like formal concept of, of a tarot spread, um, you know, if you're looking at it as far as like the, the past, present, future piece, um, it, it has some pretty interesting things to go into. Again, this is probably more into the, the teratology or cryptomancy concepts of tarot. Um, whereas like your, your horizontal reads are going to be more of like your, your ideas and dreams and you know, what it, what it is that is you really the self-analysis and stuff like that. But three is the three, the third card is always going to be the top right corner. Um, in, in this particular spread, I think this is the lore. I think it's called the lore Lenormand, I believe is how you pronounce that correctly. I'm thinking, but yeah, so, Oh, sorry. It's also referred to as the portrait spread or the box spread. And it basically is the, it's, it's ultimately the, the standard building block for larger layouts. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I got without diving too far down that particular rabbit hole. Should we go to shoutouts and dis- dispatches yes. and everything? So we had a dispatch from the wild from Will, and I'm going to mispronounce your name, last name, I'm sorry, uh, Coughlin. And he said, just wanted to say I've recently started listening to your guys' podcast and I'm in love with it. It's very detailed and while, ex- and while explained, I love the depth you guys get into and some of the tangents are just awesome. I've been looking for a community to become a part of in this game. I think I found it. Thank you for all your hard work, guys. Thank you for the dispatch, Will. It's much appreciated. And he did that dispatch from the website, which I don't know if a ton of our listeners necessarily know, but from the Focus Fire Chat website, you can actually send us messages from that yeah, website it's through directly. The lore network now, but yeah. So if you go if you go to focusfirechat.com, yep. it should redirect you to the lore network.com. Uh, and there is a contact thing. Uh, we're using the lore network. Uh, because it's also hopefully what we're trying to do is build a repository of different groups or people who do similar stuff to, that we do with Destiny, but not necessarily just with Destiny. 
because uh, we we kind of you know green has made a comment about that before but it's it's kind of something that we've noticed is lacking out there is there's not a really easy way to find different uh lore content creators it's not one it's not the easiest thing to discover it's interestingly but what yes thank you will for the for the kind words uh green do you want to lead us in the shout outs or dwyer do you want to go first which one which one of you wants to go let's have dwyer go first Shout out to um, you, Shout out you two for having me on here. Thank you so much. I've had a great time tonight. Um, also, another one of our clan members, Isakol, for, God, it's been three months now, but bringing me into this community, bringing me into the Hydra team, uh, intru- introducing me to all you wonderful people. Uh, about Yay. A little, little over three months ago, I picked the game back up because my old clan had died and I had no one to play with, and going into Gambit solos is rough (laughs) yep so i had reached out on twitter and she brought me in and you know even back at the beginning of march i wouldn't have thought of myself going to gc this year i wouldn't have thought of myself being on a podcast with anyone and it's just been awesome ever since so thank you to all of hydra to cole blue green both of you and everyone else who's made these last few months absolutely awesome mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my shout outs go to all the multiple streamers that are currently raising money for St. Jude whether you're on Mixer or Twitch you guys are awesome and I appreciate you and I know that those kids will appreciate you too as far as more of a personal shout out my little shout out kind of goes to the uh, the kind woman in Utah who um, calmed both my wife and I down because my dog decided while we were driving and viewing this very gorgeous area about 20 miles per hour, um, my dog decided to jump out of the car and gave himself massive Ooh. road rash. We had a very, very kind woman um, helped calm us down and check him over and things. So a shout out goes to her. I never got her name. It's kind of a little angel and angel in the distance kind of person. So, but he is fine, by the way. He's he's totally okay. He was just really scared and shaking, a little traumatized. But hopefully, he never jumps out of the car again because <laughs> he's a, a big dummy. Anyway, blue. Um, no, just uh, really to repeat you on the Guardian Con thing. I know we're gearing up for that. Uh, it is Twitch is Mixer is done. Yeah, Twitch is it's starting up, gonna so. these next couple weeks is gonna be insane. Um, and I think that yep. is both amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's also stressful. <laughs> um, uh, just with all the all the planning and yep. stuff going on, if we're gonna, if you guys are gonna be at Guardian Con, I encourage you to please jump into the Discord if you're not already there and let us know. Uh, we would love to try to, you know, see everyone who wants to say hello. Uh, you know, we have a couple things that we're trying to get the final pieces put together. We're hopefully gonna be able to do a couple of or one or two, maybe a little bit more uh, recordings. I, I just recently got a couple pieces of hardware that will allow me to do that. So we'll see. We're going to try to try our best to get that so that at least we have something to give you. Uh, afterwards, uh, during the week, I might actually re-release the Eris uh, interview that we did because it's going to be relevant. And I think that will give you guys something to kind of listen to while we're we're off air because we're literally not here oh all right guys well 
as always, you guys have a great week. We will talk with you next week. Um, yeah. Talk to you guys later. Bye. With that, we'll begin to wrap the chat up. Thank you again to those over on Twitch for coming to spend your evening with us. If you'd like to join us for the live streaming of the episodes, please be sure to give us a follow over on twitch.tv slash focusedfirechat. Links to all our episode archives can also be found at www.focusfirechat.com. Please be sure to email us at focusfirechat at gmail.com with any comments or questions for our team concerning the podcast and let us know how we're doing by giving us some feedback and a rating over on iTunes as well. Also, be sure to check out all the amazing work being featured over on thelorenetwork.com. So until next time, focus your fire and may your light shine bright.